Wild Youth Complete by Gilbert Parker Wild Youth Chapter 1 The Mazarines Take Possession From the beginning, Askatoon had had more character and idiosyncrasy than any other town in the West. Perhaps that was because many of its citizens had marked personality, while some were distinctly original, a few so original as to be almost bizarre. The general intelligence was high, and this made the place alert for the new observer. It slept with one eye open, it waked with both eyes wide, as wide as the windows of the world. The virtue of being bright and clever was a doctrine which had never been taught in Askatoon. It was as natural as eating and drinking. Nothing ever really shook the place out of a wholesome control and composure. Now and then, however, the flag of distress was hoisted, and everybody in the place, from Patsy Kernaghan, the casual, at one end of the scale, and the young doctor, so called because he was young-looking when he first came to the place, who represented Askatoon in the meridian of its intellect, at the other, had sudden paralysis. That was the outstanding feature of Askatoon. Some places made a noise and flung things about in times of distress, but Askatoon always stood still and fumbled with its collar buttons, as though to get more air. When it was poignantly moved, it leaned against the wall of its common sense, abashed, but vigilant and careful. That is what it did when Mr. and Mrs. Joel Mazarin arrived at Askatoon to take possession of Tralee, the ranch which Michael Turley, abandoning because he had an unavoidable engagement in another world, left to his next of kin, with a legacy to another kinsman a little farther off. The next of kin had proved to be Joel Mazarin, from one of those stern English counties on the borders of Quebec, where ancient tribal prejudices and religious hatreds give a necessary relief to hard-driven human nature. Michael Turley had lived much to himself on his ranch, but that was because in his latter days he had developed a secret taste for spirituous liquors which he had no wish to share with others. With the assistance of a bad cook and a constant spleen caused by resentment against the intervention of his priest, good father Roche, he finished his career with great haste and without either becoming a nuisance to his neighbors or ruining his property. The property was clear of mortgage or debt when he set out on his endless journey. When the prophet bearded, huge, swarthy-faced Joel Mazarin, with a beautiful young girl behind him, stepped from the westbound train and was greeted by the mayor, who was one of the executors of Michael Turley's will, a shiver passed through Askatoon, and for one instant animation was suspended, for the jungle-looking newcomer, motioning forward the young girl, said to the mayor, Mayor, this is Mrs. Mazarin. Shake hands with the mayor, Mrs. Mazarin. Mazarin did not speak very loud, but as an animal senses the truth of a danger far off with an unshakable certainty, the crowd at the station seemed to know by instinct what he said. Hell, that old whale and her, growled Jonas Billings, the keeper of the livery stable. At Mazarin's words the young doctor, a man of rare gifts, individuality and authority in the place, who had come to the station to see a patient off to the mountains by this train, drew in his breath sharply, as though a spirit of repugnance was in his heart. This happened during the first years of the young doctor's career at Askerton, when he was still alive with human prejudices, although he had a nature well-balanced and singularly just. The strife between his prejudices and his sense of justice was what made him always interesting in all the great prairie and foothill country of which Askatoon was the center. He had got his shock, indeed, before Mazarin had introduced his wife to the mayor. 
Not for nothing had he studied the human mind in its relation to the human body, and the expression of that mind speaking through the body. The instant Joel Mazarin and his wife stepped out of the train, he knew they were what they were to each other. That was a real achievement in knowledge, because Mazarin was certainly sixty-five if he was a day, and his wife was a slim, willowy slip of a girl, not more than nineteen years of age, with the most wonderful Irish blue eyes and long dark lashes. There was nothing of the wife or woman about her, save something in the eyes, which seemed to belong to ages past and gone, something so solemnly wise, yet so painfully confused, that there flashed into the young doctor's mind at first glance of her the vision of a young bird caught from its thoughtless, sunbright journeyings, its reckless freedom of winged life, into the captivity of a cage. She smiled, this child, as she shook hands with the mayor, and it had the appeal of one who had learned the value of smiling, as though it answered many a question and took the place of words and the trials of the tongue. It was pitifully mechanical. As the young doctor saw, it was the smile of a captive in a strange uncomprehended world, more a dream than a reality. Mrs. Mazarine, welcome, said the mayor after an abashed pause. We're proud of this town, but we'll be prouder still, now you've come. The girl-wife smiled again. At the same time it was as though she glanced apprehensively out of the corner of her eye at the old man by her side, as she said. Thank you. There seems to be plenty of room for us out here, so we needn't get in each other's way. I've never been on the prairie before, she added. The young doctor realized that her reply had meanings which would escape the understanding of the mayor, and her apprehensive glance had told him of the gruesome jealousy of this old man at her side. The mayor's polite words had caused the long, clean-shaven upper lip of the old man with the look of a debauched prophet to lengthen surlily, and he noticed that a wide, flat foot in a big knee boot, inside trousers too short, tapped the ground impatiently. We must be getting on to Tralee, said a voice that seemed to force its way through bronchial obstructions. Come, Mrs. Mazarine. He laid a big, flat, tropical hand, which gave the impression of being splayed, on the girl's shoulder. The gallant words of the mayor, a chivalrous mountain man, had set dark elements working. As the new master of Tralee stepped forward, the young doctor could not help noticing how large and hairy were the ears that stood far out from the devilish head. It was a huge, steel-twisted, primitive man, who somehow gave the impression of a gorilla. The face was repulsive in its combination of surly smugness, as shown by the long upper lip, by a repellent darkness round the small, furtive eyes, by a hardness in the huge, bearded jaw, and by a mouth of primary animalism. The mayor caught sight of the young doctor, and he stopped the incongruous pair as they moved to the station doorway, the girl in front, as though driven. Mr. Mazarine, you've got to know the man who counts for more in Askerton than anybody else. Doctor, you've got to know Mr. Mazarine, said the generous mayor. Repugnance was in full possession of the young doctor, but he was scientific and he was philosophic, if nothing else. He shook hands with Mazarine deliberately. If he could prevent it, there should be, where he was concerned, no jealousy, such as Mazarine had shown towards the mayor, in connection with this helpless, exquisite creature in the grip of hard fate. Shaking hands with the girl with only a friendly politeness in his glance, he felt a sudden eager clinging clasp of her fingers. It was like lightning, and gone like lightning, as was the look that flashed between them. Somehow the girl instinctively felt the nature of the man, 
and in spirit flew to him for protection. No one saw the swift look, and in it there was nothing which spoke of youth or heart, of the feeling of man for woman or woman for man, but only the longing for help on the girl's part, undefined as it was. On the man's part there was a soul whose gift and duty were healing. As the two passed on, the young doctor looked around him at the exclaiming crowd, for few had left the station when the train rolled out. Curiosity was an obsession with the people of Askerton. Well, I never, said round-faced Mrs. Skinner, with huge hips and gray curls. Did you ever see the like? I call it a shame, declared an indignant young woman, gripping tighter the hand of her little child, the daughter of a young butcher of twenty-three years of age. Poor lamb, another motherly voice said. She ought to be ashamed of herself, money, I suppose, sneered Ellen Banner a sour-faced shopkeeper's daughter, who had taught in Sunday school for twenty years and was still single. Beauty and the beast, remarked the young doctor to himself, as he saw the two drive away, Patsy Kernaghan running beside the wagon, evidently trying to make friends with the mastodon of Tralee. Chapter 2 My name is Louise. Askerton never included the Mazarines in its social scheme. Certainly Tralee was some distance from the town, but, apart from that, the newcomers remained incongruous, alien and alone. The handsome, inanimate girl-wife never appeared by herself in the streets of Askerton, but always in the company of her morose husband, whose only human association seemed to be his membership in the Methodist body so prominent in the town. Every Sunday morning he tied his pair of bay horses with the covered buggy to the hitching post in the church shed and marched his wife to the very front seat in the meeting house, having taken possession of it on his first visit as though it had no other claimants. Subsequently he held it in almost solitary control, because other members of the congregation, feeling his repugnance to companionship, gave him the isolation he wished. As a rule he and his wife left the building before the last hymn was sung, so avoiding conversation. Now and again he stayed to a prayer meeting and doing so, invariably, led in prayer, to a very limited chorus of Amens. For in spite of the position which Tralee conferred on its owner, there was a natural shrinking from that wild boar, as outspoken Sister Skinner called him in the presence of the puzzled and troubled minister. This was always a time of pained confusion for the girl-wife. She had never got religion, and there was something startling to her undeveloped nature in the thunderous apostrophes, in terms of the oldest part of the Old Testament, used by her tyrant when he wrestled with the Lord in prayer. These were perhaps the only times when her face was the mirror of her confused, vague and troubled youth. Captive in a world bounded by a man's will, she simply did not begin to understand this strange and overpowering creature who had taken possession of her body, mind, and soul. She trembled and hesitated before every cave of mystery which her daily life with him opened darkly to her abashed eyes. She felt herself going round and round and round in a circle, not forlorn enough to rebel or break away but dazed and wondering and shrinking. She was like one robbed of will, made mechanical by a stern conformity to imposed rules of life and conduct. There were women in Askatoon who were sorry for her and made efforts to get near her, but whether it was the Methodist minister or his wife, or the most voluble sister of the prayer meeting, none got beyond the threshold of Tralee, as it were. The girl-wife abashed them. She was as one who automatically spoke as she was told to speak, did what she was told to do. Yet she always smiled at the visitors when they came, 
or when she saw them and others at the meeting house. It was, however, not a smile for an individual, whoever that individual might chance to be. It was only the kindness of her nature expressing itself. Talking seemed like the exercise of a foreign language to her, but her smiling was free and unconstrained, and it belonged to all, without selection. The young doctor, looking at her one day as she sat in a buggy while her monster man was inside the chemist's shop, said to himself, Sterilized! Absolutely, shamefully sterilized! But suppose she wakes up suddenly out of that dream between life and death, what will happen? He remembered that curious, sudden, delicate catch of his palm on the day when they first shook hands at the railway station, and to him it was like the flutter of life in a thing which seemed dead. How often he had noticed it in man and animal on the verge of extinction! He had not mistaken that fluttering appeal of her fingers. He was young enough to translate it into flattering terms of emotion, but he did not do so. He was fancy-free himself, and the time would come when he would do a tremendous thing where a woman was concerned a woman in something the same position as this poor girl. But that shaking, thrilling thing was still far off from him. For this child he only felt the healer's desire to heal. He was one of those men who never force an issue. He never put forward the hands of the clock. He felt that sooner or later Louise Mazarin, he did not yet know her Christian name, would command his help, as so many had done in that prairie country, and not necessarily for relief of physical pain or the curing of disease. He had helped as many men and women mentally and morally as physically. The spirit of healing was behind everything he did. His world recognized it, and that was why he was never known by his name in all the district. He was only admiringly called. The young doctor. He had never been to Tralee since the Mazarines had arrived, though he had passed it often and had sometimes seen Louise in the garden with her dog, her black cat and her bright canary. The combination of the cat— and the canary did not seem incongruous where she was concerned. It was as though something in her passionless self neutralized even the antagonisms of natural history. She had made the gloomy black cat and the light-hearted canary to be friends. Perhaps that came from an everlasting patience which her life had bred in her. Perhaps it was the powerful gift of one in touch with the remote, primitive things. The young doctor had also seen her in the paddock with the horses, bareheaded lithe and so girlishly slim, with none of the unmistakable if elusive lines belonging to the maturity which marriage brings. He had taken off his hat to her in the distance, but she had never waved a hand in reply. She only stood and gazed at him, and her look followed him long after he passed by. He knew well that in the gaze was nothing of the interest which a woman feels in a man. It was the look of one chained to a rock, who sees a Samaritan in the cheerless distance. In the daily round of her life she was always busy, not restlessly, but constantly, and always silently busy. She was even more silent than her laconic half-breed hired woman, Radha. There was no talk with her gloating husband which was not monosyllabic. Her canary sang, but no music ever broke from her own lips. She murmured over her lovely yellow companion. She kissed it, pleaded with it for more song but the only music at her own lips was the occasional music of her voice, and it had a colorless quality which, though gentle, had none of the eloquence and warmth of youth. In form and feature she was one made for emotion and demonstration, and the passionate play of the innocent enterprises of wild youth, but there was nothing of that in her. 
Grey Age had drunk her life and had given her nothing in return, either companionship nor sympathy nor understanding, only the hunger of a coarse manhood. Her obedience to the supreme will of her jealous jailer gave no ground for scolding or reproach, and that saved her much. She was even quietly cheerful, but it was only the pale reflection of a lost youth which would have been buoyant and gallant, gay and glad, had it been given the natural thing in the natural world. There came a day, however, when the long, unchanging routine, gray with prison grayness, was broken, when the round of household duties and the prison discipline were interrupted. It was as sudden as a storm in the tropics, as final and as fateful as birth or death. That day she was taken suddenly and acutely ill. It was only a temporary malady, an agonizing pain which had its origin in a sudden chill. This chill was due, as the young doctor knew when he came, to a vitality which did not renew itself, which got nothing from the life to which it was sealed, which for some reason could not absorb energy from the stinging, vital life of the prairie world in the June time. In her sudden anguish, and in the absence of Joel Mazarin, she sent for the young doctor. That in itself was courageous, because it was impossible to tell what view the master of Trilly would take of her action, although she was. She was not supposed to exercise her will. If Joel Mazarin had been at home, he would have sent for wheezy, decrepit old Dr. Gensing, whose practice the young doctor had completely absorbed over a series of years. But the young doctor came. Rada, the half-breed woman, had undressed Louise and put her to bed, and he found her white as snow at the end of a paroxysm of pain, her long eyelashes lying on a cheek as smooth as a piece of satsuma where which has had the loving polish of ten thousand friendly fingers over innumerable years. When he came and stood beside her bed, she put out her hand slowly towards him. As he took it in his firm, reassuring grasp, he felt the same fluttering appeal which had marked their handclasp on the day of their first meeting at the railway station. Looking at the huge bed and the rancher farmer's coarse clothes hanging on pegs, the big grease boots against the wall, a sudden savage feeling of disgust and anger took hold of him, but the spirit of healing at once emerged, and he concentrated himself upon the duty before him. For a whole hour he worked with her, and at length subdued the convulsions of pain which distorted the beautiful face and made the childlike body writhe. He had a resentment against the crime which had been committed. Marriage had not made her into a woman, it had driven her back into an arrested youth. It was as though she ought to have worn short skirts and her hair in a long braid down her back. Hers was the body of a young boy. When she was free from pain, and the color had come back to her cheeks a little, she smiled at him and was about to put out her hand as a child might to a brother or a father, when suddenly a shadow stole into her eyes and crept across her face, and she drew her clenched hand close to her body. Still, she tried to smile at him. His quiet, impersonal, though friendly look soothed her. Am I very sick? she asked. He shook his head and smiled. You'll be all right tomorrow, I hope. That's too bad. I would like to be so sick that I couldn't think of anything else. My father used to say that the world was only the size of four walls to a sick person. I can't promise you so small a world, remarked the young doctor with a kind smile, his arm resting on the side of the bed, his chair drawn alongside. You will have to face the whole universe tomorrow, same as ever. She looked perplexed, and then said to him, I used to think it was a beautiful world and they try to make me think it is yet, 
But it isn't. Who tried to make you? He asked. Oh, my bird Richard, and Nigger the black cat, and Jumbo the dog, she replied. Her eyes closed, then opened strangely wide upon him in an eager, staring appeal. Don't you want to know about me? She asked. I want to tell you. I want to tell you. I'm tired of telling it all over to myself. The young doctor did not want to know. As a doctor he did not want to know. Not now, he said firmly. Tell me when I come again. A look of pain came into her face. But who can tell when you'll come again? She pleaded. When I will things to be, they generally happen. He answered in a commonplace tone. You are my patient now, and I must keep an eye on you. So I'll come. Again, with an almost spasmodical movement towards him, she said. I must tell you. I wanted to tell you the first day I saw you. You seemed the same kind of man my father was. My name's Louise. It was my mother made me do it. There was a mortgage. I was only sixteen. It's three years ago. He said to my mother he'd tear up the mortgage if I married him. That's why I'm here with him, Mrs. Mazarine. But my name's Louise. Yes, yes, I know, the young doctor answered soothingly. But you must not talk of it now. I understand perfectly. Tell me all about it another time. You don't think I should have. She paused. Of course. I tell you I understand. Now you must be quiet. Drink this. He got up and poured some liquid into a glass. At that moment there was a noise below in the hall. That's my husband, the girl wife said, and the old wan captive look came into her face. That's all right, replied the young doctor. He'll find you better. At that moment the half-breed woman entered the room. He's here, she said, and came towards the bed. That old woman has sense, the young doctor murmured to himself. She knows her man. A minute later Joel Mazarine was in the room, and he saw the half-breed woman lift his wife's head, while the young doctor held a glass to her lips. What's all this? Mazarine said roughly. What? He stopped suddenly, for the young doctor faced him sharply. She must be left alone, he said firmly and quietly, his eyes fastening the old man's eyes, and there was that in them which would not be gainsaid. I have just given her medicine. She has been in great pain. We are not needed here now. He motioned towards the door. She must be left alone. For an instant it seemed that the old man was going to resist the dictation. But presently, after a scrutinizing look at the still, shrinking figure in the bed, he swung round, left the room and descended the stairs, the young doctor following. Chapter 3 I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. The old man led the way outside the house as though to be rid of his visitor as soon as possible. This was so obvious that, for an instant, the young doctor was disposed to try conclusions with the old slaver and summon him back to the dining room. The Mazarine sort of man always roused fighting, masterful forces in him. He was never averse to a contest of wills, and he had had much of it. It was inseparable from his methods of healing. He knew that nine people out of ten never gave a true history of their physical troubles never told their whole story, first because they had no gift for reporting, no observation, and also because the physical ailments of many of them were aggravated or induced by mental anxieties. Then it was that he imposed himself, as it were, fought the deceiver and his deceit, 
or the ignorant one and his ignorance, and numbers of people, under his sympathetic, wordless inquiry, poured their troubles into his ears, as the girl-wife upstairs had tried to do. When the old man turned to face him in the sunlight, his boots soiled with dust and manure, his long upper lip feeling about over the lower lip, and its shaggy growth of beard like some sea monster feeling for its prey, the young doctor had a sensation of rancor. His mind flashed to that upstairs room, where a comely captive creature was lying not an arm's length from the coats and trousers and shabby waistcoats of this barbarian. Somehow that row of tenantless clothes, and the top boots, greased with tallow, standing against the wall, were more characteristic of the situation than the old land leviathan himself, blinking his beady, greenish eyes at the young doctor. That blinking was a repulsive characteristic. It was like serpents gulping live things. What's the matter with her? The old man asked, jerking his head towards the upper window. The young doctor explained quickly the immediate trouble, and then added, But it would not have taken hold of her so if she was not run down. She is not in a condition to resist. When her system exhausts, it does not refill, as it were. What sort of dictionary talk is that? Run down, here? The old man sniffed the air like an ancient cell. Run down, in this life, with the best of food, warm weather, and more ozone than a sailor gets at sea. It's an insult to Jehovah, such nonsense. Mr. Mazarine, rejoined the young doctor with ominous determination in his eye. You know a good deal, I should think, about spring wheat and fall plowing, about making sows fat, or burning fallow land, that's your trade, and I shouldn't want to challenge you on it all, or you know when to give a horse bran mash, or a heifer saltpetre, but well I know my job in the same way. They will tell you, about here, that I have a kind of hobby for keeping people from digging and crawling into their own graves. That's my business, and the habit of saving human life, because you're paid for it, becomes in time a habit of saving human life for its very own sake. I warn you, and perhaps it's a matter of some concern to you, Mrs. Mazarin is in a bad way. Resentful and incredulous, the old man was about to speak, but the young doctor made an arresting gesture and added, She has very little strength to go on with. She ought to be plump, her pulses ought to beat hard, her cheeks ought to be rosy, she should walk with a spring and be strong and steady as a soldier on the march, but she is none of these things, can do none of these things. You've got a thousand things to do, and you do them because you want to do them. There is something making new life in you all the time, but Mrs. Mazarine makes no new life as she goes on. Every day is taking something out of her, and there's nothing being renewed. Sometimes either good food nor ozone is enough, and you've got to take care or you'll lose Mrs. Mazarine. He could not induce himself to speak of her as wife. For a moment the unwholesome mouth seemed to be chewing unpleasant herbs, and the beady eyes blinked viciously. I'm not swallowing your meaning, Mazarine said at last. I never studied Greek. If a woman has a disease, there it is, and you can deal with it or not, but if she hasn't no disease, then it's chicanery, chicanery. Doctors talk a lot of gibberish these here days. What I want to know is, has my wife got a disease? I haven't seen any signs. Is it brights, or cancer, or the lungs, or the liver, or the kidneys, or the heart, or what's its name? The young doctor had an impulse to flay the heathen, but for the girl-wife's sake he forbore. I don't think it is any of those troubles. 
he replied smoothly. She needs a thorough examination. But one thing is clear, she is wasting, she is losing ground instead of going ahead. There's a malignant influence working. She's standing still, and to stand still in youth is fatal. I can imagine you don't want to lose her, eh? The young doctor's gray-blue eyes endeavored to hold the blinking beads under the shaggy eyebrows long enough to get control of a mind which had the cunning and cruelty of an animal. He succeeded. The old man would a thousand times rather his wife lived than died. In the first place, to lose her was to sacrifice that which he had paid for dearly, a mortgage of ten thousand dollars torn up. Louise Mazarin represented that to him first ten thousand dollars. Secondly, she was worth it in every way. He had what hosts of others would be glad to have, men younger and better looking than himself. She represented the triumph of age. He had lived his life, he had buried two wives, he had had children, he had made money, and yet here, when other men of his years were thinking of making wills, and eating porridge, and waiting for the dark policemen to come and arrest them for loitering, he was left a magnificent piece of property like Tralee, and he had all the sources of pleasure open to a young man walking the primrose path. He was living right up to the last. Both his wives were gray-headed when they died, it turned them gray to live with him, both had died before they were fifty, and here he was the sole owner of a wonderful young head, with hair that reached to the waist, with lips like cool fruit from an orchard tree, and the indescribable charm of youth and loveliness which the young themselves never really understood. That was what he used to say to himself. It was only age could appreciate youth and beauty. Youth did not understand. Thus the young doctor's question roused in him something at once savage and apprehensive. Of course he wanted Louise to live. Why should she not live? Doesn't any husband want his wife to live? He answered sullenly. But I want to know what ails her. What medicine you going to give her? I don't know, the young doctor replied meditatively. When she is quite rid of this attack, I'll examine her again and let you know. Suddenly there shot into the greenish old eyes a reddish look of rage, jealousy, horrible, gruesome jealousy, took possession of Joel Mazarin. This young man to come in and go out of his wife's bedroom, to, why weren't there women doctors? He would get one over from the coast, or from Winnipeg, or else there was old Dr. Gensing, in Askerton, who was seventy-five at least. He would call him in and get rid of this offensive young pillmaker. I don't believe there's anything the matter with her, he declared stubbornly. She's been healthy as a woman can be, living this life here. What's her disease? I've asked you. What is it? The other laid a hand on himself, and in the colorless voice of the expert said, Old age, that's her trouble, so far as I can see. He paused, foreseeing the ferocious look which swept into the repulsive face, and the clenching of the big hands. Then in a soothing, reflective kind of voice he added. Senile decay, you know all about that. Well, now, it happens sometimes, not often, but it does happen, that a very young person for some cause or another suffers from senile decay. Some terrible leakage of youth occurs. It has been cured, though, and I've cured one or two cases myself. He was almost prevaricating, but in a good cause. Mrs., Mazarin's is a case which can be cured, I think, he continued. As you've remarked, Mr. Mazarin, his voice was now persuasive. Here is fine air and a good, comfortable home. 
Suddenly he broke off, and as though in innocent inquiry said, Now, has she too much to do? Has she sufficient help in the house for one so young? She doesn't do more than's good for her, answered the old man. And there's the half-breed hired critter. You've seen her, and Li Chu, a Chinaman, too. That ought to be enough, he added scornfully. The young doctor seemed to reflect, and his face became urbane, because he saw he must proceed warily, if he was to be of service to his new patient. Yes, he said emphatically. She appears to have help enough. I must think over her case and see her again tomorrow. The old man's look suddenly darkened. Ain't she better? he asked. She's not so much better that there's no danger of her being worse, the young doctor replied decisively. I certainly must see her tomorrow. Why? the old man remarked, waving his splayed hand up and down in a gesture of emphasis. She's never been sick. She's in and out of this house all day. She goes about with her animals like as if she hadn't a care or an ache or pain in the world. I've heard of women that fancied they was sick because they hadn't too much to do, and was too well off, and was treated too well. Hysterics, they call it. Lots of women, lots and lots of them, would be glad to have such a home as this, and would stay healthy in it. The young doctor felt he had made headway, and he let it go at that. It was clear he was to be permitted to come tomorrow. Yes, it's a fine place, he replied convincingly. Three thousand acres is a mighty big place when you've got farmland as well as cattle grazing. It's nearly all good farmland, answered the old man with decision. I don't believe much in ranching or cattle. I'm for the plow and the wheat. There's more danger from cattle disease than from bad crops. I'm getting rid of my cattle. I expect to sell a lot of them today. An avaricious smile of satisfaction drew down the corners of his lips. I've got a good customer. He ought to be on the trail now. He drew out a huge silver watch. Yes, he's due. The party's a foreigner, I believe. He lives over at Slow Down Ranch. Got a French name. Oh, giggles, said the young doctor with a quick smile. The old man shook his head. No, that ain't the name. It's Guys Orlando Guys is the name. Same thing, remarked the young doctor. They call him Giggles for short. You've seen him, of course? No, I've been dealing with him so far through a third party. Why is he called Giggles? asked the master of Tralee. Well, you'll know when you see him. He's not cut according to everybody's measure. If you're dealing with him, don't think him a fool because he chirps, and don't size him up according to his looks. He's a dude. Some call him the Duke, but mostly he's known as Giggles. Fools weary me, grumbled the other. Well, as I said, you mustn't begin dealing with him on the basis of his looks. Looks don't often tell the truth. For instance, you're known as a Christian and a Methodist. He looked the old man slowly up and down, and in anyone else it would have seemed gross insolence. But the urbane smile at his lips belied the malice of his words. Well, you know you don't look like a Methodist. You look like... Innocence showed in his eye. There was no ulterior purpose in his face. You look like one of the bad McMahon lot of claim jumpers over there in the foothills. I suppose that seems so, only because ranchmen aren't generally pious. Well, in the same way, Giggles doesn't really look like a ranchman, but he's every bit as good a ranchman as you are a Christian and a Methodist. 
The young doctor looked the old man in the face with such a semblance of honesty that he succeeded in disarming a dangerous suspicion of mockery. Dangerous, if he was to continue family physician at Tralee. Ah, he suddenly remarked. There comes Orlando now. He pointed to a spot about half a mile away, where a horseman could be seen cantering slowly towards Tralee. A moment afterwards, from his buggy, the young doctor said, Mrs. Mazarine must be left alone until I see her again. She must not be disturbed. The half-breed woman can look after her. I've told her what to do. You'll keep to another room, of course. There's a bunk in that room where I could sleep, said the other, with a note of protest. I'm afraid that, in our patient's interest, you must do what I say, the other insisted, with a friendly smile which caused him a great effort. If I make her bloom again, that will suit you, won't it? A look of gloating came into the other's eyes. Let it go at that, he said. Meb, I'll take her over to the sea before the wheat harvest. Out on the Askerton Trail, the young doctor ruminated over what he had seen and heard at Tralee. That old geezer will get an awful jolt one day, he said to himself. If that girl should wake. Her eyes, if somebody comes along and draws the curtains. She hasn't the least idea of where she is or what it all means. All she knows is that she's a prisoner in some strange, savage country and doesn't know its language or anybody at all, as though she'd lost her memory. Any fellow, young, handsome and with enough dash and color to make him romantic could do it. Poor little Robin in the snow, he added, and looked back towards Tralee. As he did so, the man from Slow Down Ranch cantering towards Tralee caught his eye. Louise Orlando, he said musingly, then, with a sudden flick of the reins on his horse's back, he added abruptly, almost sternly, By the great horn spoons, no! Thus when his prophecy took concrete form, he revolted from it. A grave look came into his face. Chapter 4 Two Sides to a Bargain As the young doctor had said, Orlando Guise did not look like a real, Simon Pure. Cowpuncher he had the appearance of being dressed for the part, like an actor who has never mounted a cayuse in a Wild West play. Yet on this particular day, when the whole prairie country was alive with light, thrilling with elixir from the bottle of old Eden's vintage, and as comfortable as a garden whereupon a red wall the peach vines cling, he seemed far more than usual the close-fitting, soil-touched son of the prairie. His wide felt hat, turned up on one side like a trooper's, was well back on his head. His pinkish-brown face was freely taking the sun, and his clear, light-blue eyes gazed ahead unblinking in the strong light. His forehead was unwrinkled, a rare thing in that prairie country where the dry air corrugates the skin. His light-brown hair curled loosely on the brow, graduating back to closer, crisper curls which in their thickness made a kind of furry cap. It was like the coat of a French poodle, so glossy and so companionable was it to the head. A bright handkerchief of scarlet was tied loosely around his throat, which was even a little more bare than was the average ranchman's, and his thick, much-pocketed flannel shirt, worn in place of a waistcoat and coat, was of a shade of red which contrasted and yet harmonized with the scarlet of the neckerchief. He did not wear the sheepskin leggings so common among the ranchmen of the West, but a pair of yellowish corduroy riding breeches, with boots that laced from the ankle to the knee. These boots had that touch of the theatrical which made him more fantastic than original in the eyes of his fellow citizens. Also he wore a ring with a star sapphire, 
which made him incongruous, showy and foppish, and that was a thing not easy of forgiveness in the West. Certainly the West would not have tolerated him as far as it did, had it not been for three things, the extraordinary good nature which made him giggle, the fact that on more than one occasion he had given conclusive evidence that he was brave, and the knowledge that he was at least well-to-do. In a kind of vague way people had come to realize that his giggles belonged to a nature without guile and recklessly frank. He beats the band, Jonas Billings, the livery stable keeper, had said of him, while Burlingame, the pernicious lawyer of shady character, had remarked that he had the name of an impostor and the frame of a fop. But he wasn't sure, as a lawyer, that he'd seen all the papers in the case, which was tantamount to saying that the Orlando nut needed some cracking. It was generally agreed that his name was ridiculous, romantic, and unreasonable. It seemed to challenge public opinion. Most names in the West were without any picturesqueness or color. They were commonplace and almost geometric in their form, more like numbers to represent people than things of character in themselves. There were names semi-scriptural and semi-foreign in Askatun, but no name like Orlando Guise had ever come that way before and nothing like the man himself had ever ridden the Askatun trails one thing had to be said, however. He rode the trail like a bronco-buster, and he sat his horse as though he had been born in the saddle dot, on this particular day, in spite of his garish. Get up! He seemed to belong to the life in which he was light-heartedly whistling a solo from one of Meyerbeer's. Operas. Meyerbeer was certainly incongruous to the prairie, but it and the whistling were in keeping with the man himself. Over on Slowdown Ranch there lived a curious old lady who wore a bonnet of sweet sixteen of the time of the Crimea, and with a sense of color which would wreck the reputation of a kaleidoscope. She it was who had taught her son Orlando the tunefulness of Meyerbeer and Balfe and Offenbach, and the operatic jingles of that type of composer. Orlando Guise had come by his outward showiness naturally. Yet he was not like his mother, save in this particular— his mother was flighty and had no sense, while he, behind the gaiety of his wardrobe and his giggles, had very much sense of a quite original kind. Even as he whistled Meyerbeer, riding towards Trilly, his eyes had a look of one who was trying to see into things, and his lips, when the whistling ceased, had a cheerful pucker which seemed to show that he had seen what he wanted. Wonder if I'll get a glimpse of the so-called Mrs. Mazarine, he said aloud. Bad enough to marry a backtimer, but to marry Mazarin, they don't say she's blind either. Money, what won't we do for money, Mary? But if she's as young as they say, she could have waited a bit for the oof bird to fly her way. Lots of men have money as well as looks. Anyhow, I'm ready to take his cattle off his hands on a fair, square deal, and if his girl misses is what they say, I wouldn't mind. Having said this, he giggled and giggled again at his unspoken impertinence. He knew he had almost said something fatuous, but the suppressed idea appealed to him, nevertheless. For whatever he did, he always had a vision of doing something else, and wherever he was, he was always fancying himself to be somewhere else. That was the strain of romance in him which came from his mixed ancestry. It was the froth and bubble of a dreamer's legacy, which had made his mother, always unconsciously theatrical, have a vision of a life on the prairies, with the white mountains in the distance, where her beloved son would be master of a vast domain, over which he should ride like one of Cortez' conquistadores. Having money to burn, she had, 
at a fortunate moment, bought the ranch which, by accident, had done well from the start, and bade fair, through the giggling astuteness of her spectacular son, to do far better still by design. On the first day of their arrival at Slowdown Ranch, the mother had presented Orlando with a most magnificent Mexican bridle and headstall covered with silver conchs, and a saddle with stirrups inlaid with silver. Wherefore, it was no wonder that most people stared and wondered, while some sneered and some even hated. On the whole, however, Orlando Guise was in the way of making a place for himself in the West in spite of natural drawbacks. Old Mazarin did not merely sneer as he saw the gay cavalier approach, he snorted, and he would have blasphemed if he had not been a professing Christian. Circus rider, he said to himself, wants taking down some, and he's come to the right place to get it. On his part, Orlando Guise showed his dislike of the repellent figure by a brusque giggle, and further expressed what was in his mind by the one word, Turk. His repugnance, however, was balanced by something possessing the old man still more disagreeable. Like a malignant liquid, there crept up through Joel Mazarin's body to the roots of his hair the ancient virus of Cain. It was jealous, ravenous, grim, old age hating the rich, robust, panting youth of the man before him. Was it that being half man, half beast, he had some animal instinct concerning this young rough rider before him? Did he in some vague, prescient way associate this gaudy newcomer with his girl wife? He could not himself have said. Primitive passions are corporate of many feelings but of little sight. As Orlando Guise slid from his horse, Joel Mazarin steadied himself and said, Come about the cattle? Ready to buy and pay cash down? Orlando Guise giggled. What are you sniggering at? snorted the old man. I thought it was understood that if I liked the bunch I was to pay cash. Orlando replied. I've got a good report of the beasts, but I want to look them over. My head cattleman told you what I'd do. That's why I smiled. Funny, too. You don't look like a man who'd talk more than was wanted. He giggled again. Fool, I'll make you laugh on the other side of your mouth. The master of Trilly said to himself and then he motioned to where a bunch of a hundred or so cattle were grazing in a little dip of the country between them and Askerton. I'll get my buckboard. It's all hitched up and ready, and we can get down and see them right now, he said aloud. Won't you find it rough going on the buckboard? Better ride, remarked Orlando Guise. I don't ever notice rough going, grunted the old man. Some people ride horses to show themselves off. I ride a buckboard cause it suits me. Orlando Guys tripped. Say, we mustn't get scrapping, he said gaily. We've got to make a bargain. In a few moments they were sweeping across the prairie, and sure enough the buckboard bumped, tumbled and plunged into the holes of the gophers and coyotes. But the old man sat the seat with the tenacity of a gorilla clinging to the branch of a tree. In about three quarters of an hour the two returned to Tralee and in front of the house the final bargaining took place. There was a difference of five hundred dollars between them, and the old man fought stubbornly for it, and though Orlando giggled, it was clear he was no fool at a bargain, and that he had many resources. At last he threw doubt upon the pedigree of a bull. With a snarl Mazarin strode into the house. He had that pedigree, and it was indisputable. He would show the young swagger that he could not be caught anywhere in this game. As Joel Mazarin entered the doorway of the house Orlando giggled again, because he had two or three other useful traps ready, 
and this was really like baiting a bull. Every thrust made this bull more angry, and Orlando knew that if he became angry enough he could bring things to a head with a device by which the old man would be forced to yield, for he did not want to buy, as much as Mazarin wished to sell. The device, however, was never used, and Orlando ceased giggling suddenly, for chancing to glance up he saw a face at a window, pale, exquisite, delicate, with eyes that stared and stared at him as though he were a creature from some other world. Such a look he had never seen in anybody's eyes. Such a look Louise Mazarin had never given in her life before. Something had drawn her out of her bed in spite of herself, a voice which was not that of old Joel Mazarin, but a new, fresh, vibrant voice which broke into little spells of inconsequent laughter. She loved inconsequent laughter, and never heard it actually. She had crept from her bed into the window, and before he saw her, she had watched him with a look which slowly became an awakening, as though curtains had been drawn aside revealing a new, strange, ecstatic world. Louise Mazarin had seen something she had never seen before, because a feeling had been born in her which she had never felt. She had never fully known what sex was, or in any real sense what man meant. This romantic, picturesque, buoyant figure of youth struck her as the rock was struck by Moses, and for the first time in all her days she was wholly alive. Also, for the first time in his life, Orlando Guise felt a wonder which in spite of the hereditary romance in him had never touched him before. Like Ferdinand and Miranda in The Tempest, they changed eyes. A heavy step was heard coming through the hallway, and at once the exquisite, staring face at the window vanished while Orlando Guise turned his back upon the open doorway and walked a few steps towards the gate in an effort to recover himself. When he turned again to meet Mazarin, who had a paper in his hand, there was a flush on his cheek and a new light in his eye. The old man did not notice that, however, for his avaricious soul was fixed upon the paper in his hand. He thrust it before Orlando's eyes. What you got to say to that, mister? he demanded. Orlando appeared to examine the paper carefully, and presently he handed it back and said slowly, That gives you the extra five hundred. It's a bargain. How suddenly he had capitulated. Cash? asked the old man triumphantly. How should he know by what means Orlando had been conquered? I've got a check in my pocket. I'll fill it in. A check ain't cash, growled the grisly one. You can cash it in an hour. Come into Askatoon, and I'll get you the cash with it now, said Orlando. I can't. A man's coming for a stallion I want to sell. Give me a hundred dollars cash now to clinch the bargain, and I'll meet you at Askatoon tomorrow and get the whole of it in cash. I don't deal with banks. I pay hard money, and I get hard money. That's my rule. Well, you're in luck, for I've got a hundred dollars, answered Orlando. I've just got that and a dollar besides in my pocket. Tomorrow you go to my lawyer, Berlingame, at Askatun, and you'll get the rest of the money. It will be there waiting for you. Cash? pressed the old man. Certainly, government hundred-dollar bills. Give me a receipt for this hundred dollars. Come inside, said the old man almost cheerfully. He loved having his own way. He was almost insanely self-willed. It did his dark soul good to triumph over this circus rider. As Joel Mazarin preceded him, Orlando looked up at the window again. For one instant the beautiful, pale face of the girl-wife appeared, and then vanished.
At the doorway of the house Orlando Guise stumbled. That was an unusual thing to happen to him. He was too athletic to step carelessly, and yet he stumbled and giggled. It was not a fatuous giggle, however. In it were all kinds of strange things. Chapter 5 Orlando Has an Adventure Berlingame had the best practice of any lawyer in Askatoon, although his character had its shady side. The prairie standards were not low, but tolerance is natural where the community is ready-made, where people from all points of the compass come together with all sorts of things behind them, where standards have at first no organized sanction. Financially Berlingame was honest enough, his defects being associated with those ancient sources of misconduct, wine and women, and in his case the morphia habit as well. It said much for his physique that, in spite of his indulgences, he not only remained a presentable figure but a lucky and successful lawyer. Being something of a philosopher, the young doctor looked upon Berlingame chiefly as one of those inevitable vintages from a vineyard which, according to the favor or disfavor of heaven, yields from the same soil both good and bad. He had none of that puritanism which would ruthlessly root out the vines yielding the bad wine. To his mind that could only be done by the axe, the rope, or the bullet. It seemed of little use, and very unfair, to drive the wolf out of your own garden into that of your neighbor. Therefore Berlingame must be endured. The day after the young doctor had paid his professional visit to Tralee, and Orlando Guise had first seen the girl wife of the behemoth, the young doctor visited Berlingame's office. Berlingame had only recently returned from England, whither he had gone on important legal business, which he had agreeably balanced by unguarded adventures and forbidden paths he was in an animated mood. Three things had just happened which had given him great pleasure. In the morning he had gained a verdict of acquittal in the case of one of the McMahon gang for manslaughter connected with jumping a claim, and this meant increased reputation. He had also got a letter from Orlando Guise, and a check for $6,000, with instructions to pay the amount in cash to Joe Mazarin, and this meant a chance of meeting Mazarin and perhaps getting a new client. Likewise he had received a letter of instructions from a client in Montreal, a kinsman and legatee of old Michael Turley, the late owner of Turley, in connection with a legacy. This would involve some legal proceedings with considerable costs, and also contact with Joe Mazarin, whom he had not yet seen, for Mazarin had come while he was away in England. His interest in Mazarin, however, was really an interest in Mrs. Mazarin, concerning whom he had heard things which stimulated his imagination. To him a woman was the supreme interest of existence, apart from making a necessary living. He was the primitive and pernicious hunter. He had been discreet enough not to question people too closely where Mazarin's wife was concerned, but there was, however, one gossip whom Berlingame questioned with some freedom. This was Patsy Kernanghan. Before the young doctor arrived at his office this particular morning, Patsy, who had followed him from the courthouse, was put under a light and skillful cross-examination. He had been of service to Berlingame more than once, and he was regarded as a useful man to do odd jobs for his office, as for other offices in Askerton. Ah, him, that murder in Moloch at Tralee exclaimed Patsy when the button was pressed. That Methodist fellow with the face of a pirate. If there wasn't a better protestant than him in the world, the meeting houses be used for Kinlandwood. Joe, they call him, a dacent prophet's name misused. I charred him praying once, as I stood outside the meeting house windies. 
to hear that holy hyena lift up his voice to the skies. Sure, I've never been the same man since, for the voice of him says one thing, and the look of him another. Says I to myself, Mr. Burlingame, why are Anner, the minute I first saw him, says I, Askatun's no safe place for me. When one like that gets a foot in in a place, the locks can't be too many to shut ye in when ye want to sleep at night. That fella's got no pedigree, and if it wouldn't hurt some decent woman, maybe, I'd say he was misbegotten. But still, I'll tell ye, out there at Tralee there's what'd have saved Sodom and Gomorrah, that'd have saved Jerusalem, and there wouldn't ha been a single moan from Jeremiah. Out at Tralee there's as beautiful a little lady as you'd want to see. Just a girl she is, not more than nineteen or twenty years of age. She's got a face that'd make you want to lift the corals and the antiphons to her every morning. She's got the figure of one that was never to grow up, and there she is the wedded wife of that crocodile great-grandfather. Ah, uh, I know all about it, Mr. Burlingame, why are Anner? How do I know? Didn't Michael Tully tell me before he died what sort o' man his cousin was? Didn't he tell me Joel Mazarine married first when he was eighteen years of age, and his daughter was married when she was seventeen? and her son was married when he was eighteen, and Joel's a great-grandfather now. And see him out there with her that looks as if the kindergarten was the place for her. Do you go to Trilly often? asked Berlingame. Eyes. There's a job now and then to do. I'm riding an old moke on errands for him when his hired folks is busy. A man must live, and there's that pretty lass with the Irish eyes. Man alive, but it goes to me hard to luck at her. Well, I think I must have a luck at her then, was Berlingame's half-satirical remark. Not long after Patsy Kernaghan had left Berlingame's office, the young doctor came. His business was brief, and he was about to leave when Berlingame said, The Mazarines out at Tralee, you know them? They came while I was away. Queer old goat, isn't he? His exact place in natural history I'm not able to select, answered the young doctor dryly. But I know him. And his wife, you know her? asked Berlingame casually. The other nodded. Yes, in a professional way. Has she been sick? She is ill now. What's the matter? What's the truth about that McMahon claim jumper who was acquitted this morning? asked the young doctor with a quizzical eye and an acid note to his voice. You've got your verdict, but you know the real truth, and you mustn't and won't tell it. Well? Berlingame saw. Well, I'll have to ask the old goat myself, he said. He's coming here today. He took up Orlando Guise's letter from the table, glanced at it smilingly, and threw it down again. He must be a queer specimen, Berlingame continued. He wouldn't take Orlando Guise's check yesterday. He says he'll only be paid in hard cash. He's coming here this afternoon to get it. He's a crank, whatever else he is. They tell me he doesn't keep a bank account. If he gets a check, he has it changed into cash. If he wants to send a check away, he buys one for cash from somebody. He pays for everything in cash, if he can. Actually, he hasn't a banking account in the place. Cash. Nothing but cash. What do you think of that? The young doctor nodded. Cash as a habit is useful. Every man must have his hobby, I suppose. Considering the crimes tried at the court in this town, Mazarin's got unusual faith in human nature, or else he feels himself pretty safe at Tralee. Thieves? asked Berlingame satirically. 
Yes, I believe that's still the name, though judging from some of your talk in the courthouse, it's a word that gives opportunity to take cover. I hope your successful client of today, and his brothers, are not familiar with the ways of Mr. Mazarin. I hope they don't know about this $6,000 in cold cash. A sneering, sour smile came to Berlingame's lips. The medical man's dry illusions touched him on the raw all too often. Oh, of course, I told them all about that $6,000. Of course. A lot of people suspect those McMahons of being crooked. Well, it has never been proved. Until it's proved, they're entitled. Berlingame paused. To the benefit of the doubt, eh? Why not? I've heard you hold the balance pretty fair twixt your patience and the undertaker. Quite unmoved, the young doctor coolly replied. In your own happy phrase, of course. I get a commission from the undertaker when the patient's a poor man. When he's a rich man, I keep him alive. It pays. The difference between your friends the criminals and me is that probably nobody will ever be able to catch me out. But the McMahons will get them yet. A stern, determined look came into his honest eye. Yes, we'll get them yet. They're a nasty fringe on the skirts of Askerton. But there it is as it is. He continued. You take their dirty money, and I don't refuse pay when I'm called in to attend the worst man in the West, whoever he may be. Why, Berlingame, as your family physician, I shouldn't hesitate even to present my account against your estate if, in a tussle with the devil, he got you out of my hands. Now a large and friendly smile covered his face. He liked hard-hitting but he also liked to take human nature as it was, and not to quarrel. Berlingame, on his part, had no desire for strife with the young doctor. He would make a very dangerous enemy. His return smile was a great effort, however. Ruefulness and exasperation were behind it. The young doctor had only been gone a few minutes when Joel Mazarin entered Berlingame's office. I've come about that six thousand dollars Mr. Guise of Slowdown Ranch owes me the old man said without any formal salutation. He was evidently not good-humored. At sight of Mazarin, Berlingame at once accepted the general verdict concerning him. That, however, would not prejudice him greatly. Berlingame had no moral sense. Mazarin's face might revolt him, but not his character. I've got the cash here for you, and I'll have in a witness and hand the money over at once. He said, The receipt is ready. I assume you are Joel Mazarin, he added, in a weak attempt at being humorous. Get on with the business, mister, said the old man surlily. In a few moments he had the six thousand dollars in good government notes in two inner pockets of his shirt. It made him feel very warm and comfortable. His face almost relaxed into a smile when he bade Berlingame good day. Berlingame had said nothing about the letter from the late Michael Tully's kinsman in Montreal and the question of the legacy. This was deliberate on his part. He wanted an excuse to visit Tully and see its mistress with his own eyes. He had attempted to pluck many flowers in his day, and had not been unsuccessful. Out at Tully was evidently a rare orchid carefully shielded by the gardener. As Mazarin left the lawyer's office, he met in the doorway that member of the McMahon family for whom Berlingame had secured a verdict of acquittal a couple of hours before. As was his custom, Mazarin gave the other a sharp, scrutinizing look, but he saw no one he knew, and he passed on. The furtive smile which had betrayed his content at pocketing the six thousand dollars still lingered at the corners of his mouth. 
Though he did not know the legally innocent McMahon whom he had just passed, McMahon was not so ignorant. There was no one in all the countryside whom the McMahons did not know. It was their habit, or something else, to be familiar with the history of everybody thereabouts, although they lived secluded lives at Arrowhead Ranch, which adjoined that belonging to Orlando Guys. When Tom McMahon saw Mazarine leave Berlingame's office, his furtive eye lighted. Then it was true, what he had heard from the hired girl at Slow Down Ranch, that old Mazarine was to receive $6,000 in cash from Orlando Guys by the hands of Berlingame. Only that very morning, at the moment of his own release from jail, his brother Bill McMahon had told him of the conversation overheard between Orlando and his mother, by Millie Gorst, the hired girl. He turned and watched Mazarine go down the street and enter a barber's shop. If Mazarine was going to have his hair cut, he would be in the barber's shop for some time. With intense reflection in his eyes, McMahon entered Berlingame's office. He had come to settle up accounts for a clever piece of courtroom work on the part of Berlingame. It was very well worth paying for liberally. When he entered the office, Berlingame was not there. A clerk, however, informed him that Berlingame would be free within a few moments, and would he take a chair? Thereupon, the clerk left the room. McMahon took a chair, not the one towards which the clerk pointed him, but one beside the desk whereon were lying a number of open letters. The interrogation always in the mind of a natural criminal prompted McMahon to take a seat near the open letters. As soon as the clerk left the room, a hairy hand reached out for the nearest letter, and a swift glance took in its contents. A grimly cheerful, vicious smile lighted up the heavily bearded face. Placing the letter on the desk again, as soon as it was read, McMahon almost threw himself over to the chair at some distance from the desk, which the clerk had first offered him. There he sat with his elbows on his knees and his chin in his hands when Berlingame entered the room. Ten minutes later, with a receipted bill in his pocket, Tom McMahon made for the barber's shop which Mazarine had entered. He found it full, but seated in the red plush chair, tipped back at a convenient angle, was Mazarine undergoing the triple operations of shaving his upper lip, beard trimming and hair cutting. From that moment and for the rest of all the long day and evening, Joel Mazarine commanded the unvarying interest of two members of the McMahon family. Orlando Guise had had a long day but one that somehow made him whistle or sing to himself most of the time. In a way, half a lifetime had gone since the day before, when he had first seen what he called to himself. The captive maid. He had never been so happy in his life, and yet he knew that he had not the faintest right to be happy. The girl who had so upset his self-control as to make him stumble on her doorstep was the wife of another man. It was, of course, silly to call him. Another man because he seemed a million miles away from any sphere in which Orlando lived. Yet he was another man, and he was also the husband of the girl who had made Orlando feel for the very first time a strange singing in his veins. It actually was as though some wonderful, magnetic thing was making his veins throb and every nerve tingle and sing. It beats me, he said to himself fifty times that day. He had never been in love. He did not know what it was like except that he had seen it make men do silly things, just as drink did. He did not know whether he was in love or not. It was absurd that a man should be in love with a face at a window, a face with the beauty of a ghost rather than of a real live woman. Orlando had little evil in his nature. 
His eyes did not look towards Tralee as did Berlingame's eyes. Nothing furtive stirred in Orlando's intensely blue eyes. Whatever the feeling was, it was an open thing, which had neither motive nor purpose behind it, just a thing almost feminine in its nature. As yet it was like the involuntary adoration which girls at a certain period of their lives feel successively for one hero after another. What it would become, who could tell? What would happen to the young girl adoring the actor, or the hero of the North Pole, the battlefield or the sea, if the adored one was not far off, but very near? Indeed, who could tell? But as it was, in the upper room where Louise sat all day looking out over the prairie, and on the prairie where business carried Orlando from ranch to ranch on this perfect day, no recreant thought or feeling existed. Each was a simple soul, as yet unspoiled and in one sense unsophisticated. The girl, however, with an instinctive caution, such as an animal possesses in the presence of a foe with which it is in truce, the man with an astuteness which belonged to a native instinct for finding a way of doing hard things in the battle of life. All day Orlando wondered when he should see that face again. All day the eyes of Louise pleaded for another look at the ranchman with the dress of a dandy, the laugh of a child, and the face of an Apollo, or so it seemed to her. It was the sort of day which ministers to human emotion, which stirs the sluggish blood, revives the drooping spirit. There was a curious, delicate blueness of the sky over which an infinitely more delicate veil of mist was softly drawn. At many places on the prairie the haymakers were loading the great wagons, here and there a fallow field was burning, yonder a house was building, cattle were being rounded up, and far off, like moving specks, ranchmen were climbing the hills where the wild broncos were, for a day of the toughest, most thrilling sport which the world knows. Night fell, and found Orlando making for the trail between what was known as the company's ranch and Tralee. To reach his own ranch, he had to cross it at an angle near the Tralee homestead. It was dark, with no moon but the stars were bright. As he crossed the Tralee Trail, he suddenly heard a cry for help. Between him and where the sound came from was a fire burning. It was the campfire of some prairie pioneer making for a new settlement in the north, and beside it was a tent whose owner was absent in Askerton. Orlando dug heels into his horse and rode for the point from which the cry for help had come. Something was undoubtedly wrong. The voice was that of one in real trouble a hoarse, strangled sort of voice. As he galloped through the light of the campfire, a pistol shot rang out, and he felt a sharp, stinging pain in his side. Still urging his horse, he cleared the little circle of light, and presently saw a man rapidly mounting a horse, while two others struggled on the ground. He dashed forward. As he did so, one of the men on the ground freed himself, sprang to his feet, mounted his horse, and was away into the night with his companion. Orlando slid to the ground beside the figure which was slowly raising itself from the ground. What's the matter? Are you all right? Have they hurt you? He asked, as he stooped over and caught the shoulders of the victim of the two fleeing figures. At that instant there were two more pistol shots, and a bullet hit the ground beside Orlando. Then he saw dimly the face of the man whom he was helping to his feet. Mazarine! Good Lord Mazarine, he said in an anxious voice. What have they done to you? Nothing, I'm all right. The dogs, the rogues, the thieves, but they didn't get it. It was in the pockets of my shirt. The old man was almost hysterical. You just come in time, Mr. Guise. 
You frightened them off. They'd have found it, if it hadn't been for you. Found what? Asked Orlando, as he helped the old man towards the campfire, himself in pain, and a dizziness coming over him. Found your six thousand dollars that Berlingame paid me today, gasped the old man, spasmodically. But it's here, it's here. He caught at his breast with devouring greed. Somehow the agitated joy of the old man revolted Orlando. He had a sudden rush of repulsion, but he fought it down. Are you all right? he asked. Are you all right? Somehow the sound of his own voice was very weak. Yes, I'm all right, Mazarin said, and he called to his horse nearby. The horse did not stir, and the old man, whose breath came almost normally now, moved over and caught its bridle. In a dazed kind of way, and with growing unsteadiness, Orlando walked towards the campfire. He was leaning against his horse, and opening his coat and waistcoat to find the wound in his side and staunch it with the kerchief from his neck, when Mazarin came up. What's that on your coat and breeches? Say, you're all bloody! exclaimed Mazarin. Why, they shot you! Yes, they got me! was Orlando's husky reply, and he gave a funny little laugh. Giggling, people had called it. How are we going to get you home? Mazarin asked. You can't ride. At that moment there was the rumbling jolt of a wagon. It was the pioneer emigrant returning from Askatoon to his camp. A few minutes later Orlando was lying on some bags in the emigrant's wagon, while Mazarin rode beside it. It's only a few hundred yards to the house, said the emigrant sympathetically, as he looked down at the now unconscious figure in the wagon. It's four miles to his house, said Mazarin. Well, I'm not taking him four miles to his house or any house, said the emigrant. My horse has had enough today, and the sooner the lads attended to, the better. He's going to the nearest house, and that's Tralee, as they call it, just here. That's my house, gruffly replied the old man. Well, that's where you want him to go, ain't it? asked the pioneer sharply. He could not understand the owner of Tralee. Yes, that's where I want him to go, replied Mazarin slowly. Then you ride ahead on the trail, and I'll follow, returned the other decisively. What's the matter? Who hurt him? He presently called to Mazarin, riding in front. I'll tell you when we get to Tralee, answered the old man, with his eyes fixed on two lights in the near distance. One was in the kitchen, where a half-breed woman was giving supper to Li Chu, a faithful Chinaman roustabout. The other was in the room where a young wife sat with hands clasped, wondering why her husband did not return, yet glad that he did not. Chapter 6 Things Must Happen Between two sunrises Louise Mazarin had seen her old world pass in a flash of flame and a new world trembling with a new life spread out before her, had come to know what her old world really was. The eyes with which she looked upon her new world had in them the glimmer not only of awakened feeling but of awakened understanding. To this time she had endured her aged husband as a slave comes to bear the lashes of his master, with pain which will be renewed and renewed, but pain only, and not the deeper torture of the soul, for she had never really grasped what their relations meant. To her it had all been part of the unavoidable misery of life. But on that sunny afternoon when Orlando Guise's voice first sounded in her ears, and his eyes looked into hers as, pale and ill, she gazed at him from the window, a revelation came to her of what the three years of life with Joel Mazarin had really been. 
from that moment until she heard the pioneer's wagon, escorted by her husband, bringing the unconscious Orlando guys to her door, she had lived in a dream which seemed like a year of time to her. Since the early morning of that very day, when Joel had leaned over her bed and asked her in his slow, grinding voice how she was, she had lived more than in all the past nineteen years of her life. The young doctor had come and gone, amazed at first, but presently with a look of apprehension in his eyes. There was not much trace of yesterday's illness in the alert, eager girl-wife, who twenty-four hours before had been really nearer to the end of all things than her aged husband. The young doctor knew all too well what the curious, throbbing light in her eyes meant. He knew that the gay and splendid Orlando guise had made the sun for this prismatic radiance, and that the story of her life, which Louise had wished to tell him yesterday, would never now be told, for she would have no desire to tell it. The old vague misery, the ancient veiled torture, was behind her, and she was presently to suffer a new torture, but also a joy for which men and women have borne unspeakable things. No, Louise would never tell him the story of her life, because now she knew it was a thing which must not be told. Her mind understood things it had never known before. To be wise is to be secret, and she had learned some wisdom, and the young doctor wondered if the greater wisdom she must learn would be drunk from the cup of folly. Before he left her he had said to her with meaning in his voice, My dear young madam, your recovery is too rapid. It is not a cure, it is a miracle, and miracles are not easily understood. We must, therefore, make them understood, and so you will take regularly three times a day the powerful tonic I will give you. She was about to interrupt him, but he waved a hand reprovingly and added with kindly irony. Yes, we both know you don't need a tonic out of a bottle, but it's just as well other people should think that the tonic bringing back the color to your cheeks comes out of a bottle and not out of a health resort, called Slow Down Ranch, about four miles to the northwest of Tralee. As he said this, he looked straight into the eyes which seemed, as it were, to shrink into cover from what he was saying. But when, an instant afterwards, he took her hand and said goodbye, he knew by the trembling clasp of her fingers, even more appealing than they had yet been, that she understood. So it was a few moments later, outside the house, he had said to Joel Mazarin that he had given his wife a powerful tonic, and he hoped to see an almost instant change in her condition. But she must have her room to herself for a time, according to his instructions of the day before, as she was nervous and needed solitude to induce sleep. He was then about to start for Askatoon when the old man said, I suppose you won't have to come again, as she's going on all right. To this the young doctor had replied firmly, Yes, I'm coming out tomorrow. She's not fit yet to go to Askatoon, and I must see her once again. Oh, keep coming, that's right, keep coming, answered the miserly old man, who still was not so miserly that he did not want his young wife blooming. Coming tomorrow, eh, he added, with something very like a sneer. The other had a sudden flash of fury pass through his veins. The old Celtic quickness to resent insults swept over him. The ire of his forefathers waked in him. This outrageous old Caliban, to attempt to sneer at him. For an instant he was Kokini let loose, and then the cool, trained brain reasserted its mastery, and he replied. If there should be a turn for the worse, send for me tonight, not tomorrow. And he looked the old man in the eyes with a steady, steely glance which had nothing to do with the words he had just uttered, but was the challenge of a conquering spirit.
the young doctor had acted with an almost uncanny prescience. It was as though he had foreseen that Orlando just would be carried upstairs to a room nearly opposite that of Lee's, and laid unconscious on a bed, till he himself should come again that very night and extract a bullet from Orlando's side, that he would open Orlando's eyes to consciousness, hear Orlando say, Where am I? And note his startled look when told he was at Tralee. Once during this visit, while making Orlando safe and comfortable, with the help of Lee Chu, the Chinaman, and Rada, the half-breed, he had seen Louise for a moment. The old man had gone to the stables, and as he came out of the room where Orlando was, Louise's door opened softly on him. Dimly, in the half-darkness of her room, in which no light was burning, he saw her. She beckoned to him. Shutting the door of Orlando's bedroom behind him, he came quickly to her side and said, Go to bed at once, young woman. This will not do. I'm not sick now, she urged. Say, I really am well again. You must not be well again so soon, he replied meaningly. I want you to understand that you must not, he insisted. There was a pause, which seemed interminable to the young doctor, who was listening for the heavy footstep of Joel Mazarin outside the house, and then at last in agitation Lee said to him, Will he get well? Rada told me he was shot saving Mr. Mazarin. Will he get well? Yes, he will get well, and quickly if... He broke off, for there was the thud of a heavy footstep for which he had been listening. Joel Mazarin was returning. Won't they let me help nurse him? She whispered. The young doctor shook his head in negation. His mother will be here tomorrow, he said quickly. Be wise, my child. You understand? she whispered wistfully. I have no understanding. Go to bed, he answered sharply. Shut the door at once. When old Joel Mazarin's footsteps were heard upon the staircase again, Orlando was lying with half-closed eyes, watching, yet too weak to speak, and the young doctor was giving directions to Rada and Li Chu for the night watch in Orlando's room. When Mazarin entered, the young doctor gave him a casual nod and went on with his directions. When he had finished, Rada said in her broken English, with an accent half-Indian, half-French, His mother you send for, yes? She come kick. Someone must take care him when for me get breakfast and let you do chores. We'll send for her in the morning, interrupted Joel Mazarin. Perhaps Mrs. Mazarin would be well enough to help a little in the morning, remarked the young doctor in a colorless voice. He knew when to be audacious. Or, if he did not know, he had an instinct, and he noticed that the wounded man's eyelids did not even blink when he threw out the hint concerning Louise, while the eyes of the old man took on a sullen flame. Mrs. Mazarin has to be molly coddled herself, that's what you've taught her, he snarled. Well then, send for Mrs. Guys tonight, commanded the young doctor. He thought Joel Mazarin made unnecessary noise as he stamped down the staircase to send a farmhand to slow down ranch, and he also thought that Orlando Guise showed discretion of manner and look in a moment of delicacy and difficulty. He knew, however, that, as the children say, things must happen. Chapter 7 The Zoological Garden Patsy Kernaghan regarded Trilly as a kind of lost paradise for the most part because it had passed from the hands of a son of the Catholic Church into those of the praying Methodies, as he called them, and also because he had a black heart Aegean, Joel Mazarin. 
The spark was struck in him with some vigor one day at Tralee. It was caused by the flamboyant entrance of Mrs. Guys into the front garden, as the young doctor was getting into his buggy for the return journey to Askerton, after attending Orlando, whose enforced visit to Tralee had already extended over a week. Ah, doctor dear, said Patsy, as Orlando's mother fluttered into the garden like a gorgeous hen with wings outspread, her clothes a riot of contradictory colors, all of them insistently bright. Do you know what this place is? This terry firme on which we stand, that's one mile one way, and half a mile the other? Ye don't? Well, I'll tell ye, it's a zoological garden. Is it like a human being she is, the dear old woman there? Isn't she just some gay old bird from the forests of the equator, wherever it is? Look at the beautiful little white curls hanging down her cheek, tied with ribbon pink ribbon too, and the bonnet on her head. Did ye ye ver see anything like it outside a zoological garden? Isn't it like the top knot of some fine old parakeet from Pernambucoco? And oh, Father Rainbow, the magenta dress of her. Now I tell you, Dr. Dear, I tell you the truth, what I know. She wears hoops, she does, the same as why our grandmother used to. And the bit of rose ribbon round her waist, hanging down behind. Now I ask why our Anna, is it like a woman at all? See the face of her with the little snappin' eyes and the yellow beak of a nose, and the sunset in her cheeks that's put on with a painter's brush. Look at her trippin' about. Floatin', sure, that's what she's doin'. If you listened hard, you'd hear her buzzin'. It's the truth, I tell ye. Do ye follow me? The young doctor liked talking to Patsy Kernaghan better than to any other person in Askerton. He was always sure to be stimulated by a new point of view but he never failed to provoke Kernaghan by skepticism. One wild bird from Pernambucoco does not make a zoological garden, Patsy, he said with an air of dissent. Well, that's true for you, Dr. Deer, answered Kernaghan. But this garden's got a bunch of specimens for all that. Listen to me now. Did ye ever notice the likeness between the faces of people and of animals and things that fly? You never did? Well, be thinking of it now. Every man and woman here actually looks like an animal or a bird in a zoological garden. Sure, there's no likeness between any two of them. It's as if they was gathered from every corner of the wide world. There's a Mongolian in the kitchen and slithering about outside, doing the things that's part for man and part for woman. Li Chu, they call him. Isn't his the face of a bald-headed baboon? And the half-breed creature, she might ha come from Patagony. And the old man Mazarine. Part rhinoceros and part methody he is. And what do ye be thinking of him they call Giggles, that almost gov his life to save the old behemoth? Doesn't he remind you of the zebra, where the wild Hottentots come from, smart and handsome, but that showy, all stripes and tail and fetlock? Do ye understand what I mean? Why are Anner? Have you finished calling names, Kernaghan? asked the young doctor in a low tone. Have you really finished your zoological list? Kernaghan's eye flashed. Ah, doctor dear, said he, Manny's the time in County Inniskillen, where you come from, you've seen a wild thing, barefooted, springing from stone to stone on the hillside, with her hair flying behind like the daughter of a witch or something only half-human so belonging to the hills and the bogs and the cromlechs was she. Well, that's the maid that's mistress of Tralee, belonging as much to the Garden of Eden as to this place here. There's none of them here that belongs. Every one of them's been caught away from where he ought to be into this zoological garden. 
Well, there's one good thing about a zoological garden, Patsy Kernaghan, said the young doctor. It's generally a safe place for the birds and animals in it. But suppose someone, suppose, now, the keeper got drunk and let loose the population of the garden upon each other. Do you think would it be a garden of Eden? Suddenly Patsy's manner changed. Ah, I tell you this, then, I don't like what I see here, and I like it less and less every day. What don't you like, Patsy? asked the other quizzically. I don't like the way the old fellow watches that child he calls his wife. I don't like the young fellow being the cause of the old man's watching dot. What has happened? What has he done? asked the young doctor a little anxiously. Divil's me own, it isn't what he's done, it's his being here. It's his being what he is. It doesn't need doing to bring wild youth together. Look at her, why are Anna? A week ago she was like one that did be called to the land of Canaan any minute. Wasn't you here tendin' her, as if she was steppin' until her grave, and look at her now. She's like a rose in the garden, like a lark's lilt in the air. What has done it? The young man's done it. You'll be tellin' the old fella it's the tonic you've gov her. Tonic? How long do you think he'll bellave it? But she never sees Mr. Guise, does she, Patsy? Isn't his mother always with him? Hasn't Mazarine forbidden his wife to enter the room? Kernaghan threw out his hands. And you're the man they say is the cleverest step in between Winnipeg and the mountains. And, and, you talk to me like that. Is the old fella always in the house? Is he always upstairs? I ask you now. I'll tell you this, Wyranner. The young doctor interrupted him. Don't you suppose that there's somebody always watching, Patsy? the half-breed, the Chinaman? Kernaghan snapped a finger. Ah, uh, must I be wire schoolmaster in the days of your dotage? Of course the old fella has someone to watch, and I dunno which it is, the Chinaman or the half-breed woman. But I'll tell you this, they'll take his pay and lie to him about whatever's going on inside the house. That girl has them both in the palms of her hands. Let him set what spies he will, she'll do what she wants, if the young man lets her. His mother, interjected the young doctor. Her of the plumage, her. Sure, she's not living in this world. She's only visiting it. She's got no responsibility. If ever there was a child of a fairy tale, that woman's the child. I'd belave she'd think her son was doing right if he tied the old fella up to a tree and stuck him as full of engine arrows as a pincushion, and rode off with the lovely little lady in Bayant there. That's my mind about her. It isn't on her you can rely. If you want the truth, why are Anna, them two young people have had words together and plenty of them, whether it's across the hall, her room from his, or in his room, or through the windy or down the chimney, sure, I don't care. They spoke. There's that between them wants watching. Not that there's wrong in eight her of them, divil a bit. I've got me own mind about Mr. Orlando Giggles. As for her, the pity thing, she doesn't know what wrong is. That's the worst of it. The young doctor tapped Kernaghan's head gently with his whip. Patsy, said he, you talk a lot. There's no greater talker between here and Donegal. But still I think you know what to say and whom to say it to. Kernaghan's cap came off. He ran his fingers through his hair and looked at the other with a primitive intelligence which showed him to be what the young doctor knew him to be, better than his looks, or his place in the world, or his reputation. Thank you kindly, Wire Anner, he said softly. 
I'm troubled about things here, I am. That's why I spoke to ye. I'm afraid of the old fella, for his place is not in the pen with that young thing, and he'll break her heart, or kill her, if he gets to know the truth. What do you mean by the truth, Patsy? was the sharp query. I mean nothing at all, save that in their wild youth is Spock into wild youth, honest and dacent and true. But there's many a tragedy comes out of that, wire anner. Orlando has been sitting up for two days, said the young doctor meditatively, and in two days more he can be removed. Patsy, you are staying on here, Dot, I know, and I trust you. The girl and the young man have both been my patients. I think as much of both of them as I can think of any man or woman. He's straight and— But a girl's mad when the love song rises in her heart, interjected Kernaghan. Yes, I know, Patsy, but it isn't so bad as you think. I had a talk with her today. Perhaps we can get him away tomorrow. Meanwhile, there can't much happen. Can't much happen, with that old woman in the garden there, and the young wife upstairs, and the fine young fella sitting alone in his room and for the sound of her voice. Sure, they're together at this minute, P.R.A.P.S. The young doctor tapped Kernaghan again on the head with his whip. You're a wild Irishman still, he said, but I think none the worse of you for that. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Keep your head, Patsy. And whipping up his horse, he nodded and drove on. It may be that Kernaghan's instinct was no truer than his own. It may be the young doctor knew Kernaghan's instinct to be true, and it also may be that what Kernaghan thought possible, the young doctor thought possible, but he also felt that things must be as they must be. In any case Kernaghan was right, for while the little flamboyant lady from Slowdown Ranch was busy in the front garden, Louise Mazarine was with her wounded guest, with the man who had saved her husband's money and perhaps his life. The wounded guest regarded his wound as a blessing almost. Perhaps that was why he did not notice that his host had only been silently grateful. Chapter 8 The Oriental Way of It Orlando Guise's mother was lacking in the caution which mothers generally have where their men children are concerned. If she had had sense, she would have insisted on removing Orlando to slow down ranch at the earliest possible moment, even at some risk to his physical well-being. She ought to have seen that Joel Mazarine was possessed of a jealousy as unreasoning as that of an animal. She ought to have discouraged Louise's kindnesses. If the kindnesses had been only the ordinary acts of a mistress of a house to a guest who had saved her husband's life, dishes made by her own hand, strengthening drinks, flowers picked and arranged by herself, there could have been no cause for nervousness. Each thing done by Louise, however, came from a personally and emotionally solicitous interest. It was to be seen in the glance of the eye, in the voice a little unsteady, in girlish overemphasis, in that shining something in the face, which, in Ireland, they call the love light. So great was Mrs. Guise's vanity, so intense her content in her son, so proud was she of other people's admiration of him, no matter who they were, that she welcomed Louise's attentions. Kernaghan was wrong. Mazarine had not forbidden Louise to enter Orlando's room. That was the contradictory nature of the man. His innate savagery made him brood wickedly over her natural housewifery attentions to the man who had probably saved his own life, and certainly had saved him six thousand dollars. Yet it was as though he must see the worst that might happen, must even encourage a danger which he dreaded. 
when the Methodist minister from Askatoon came to offer prayer for Orlando, Joel joined in it with all the unction of a class leader, while every word of the prayer trembled in an atmosphere of hatred. As Patsy Kernaghan said, he himself watched, and he paid the Chinamen to watch, in the vain belief that money would secure faithful service. The young doctor had told him that his powerful medicine had brought back the bloom to his young wife's cheeks and the light to her eyes, but how much he believed, he could not himself have said. One thing he did know, it was that Orlando seemed quite indifferent to everything except his mother, the state of the crops, and the reports on his own cattle. Also Orlando had made a good impression when he resented with a funny little oath and a funnier little giggle, but with some heat in his cheek, Joel's ostentatious proposal to pay the young doctor's bill for attendance. The offer had been made when Lise was standing in the doorway, but the old man did not notice that Louise colored in sympathy with the flush in Orlando's face. It was as though a delicate nerve had been touched in each of them, but it was a nerve that had never been sensitive until they had met each other for the first time. Orlando's mother dealt with the situation in her own way. She said in a somewhat awkward pause, following the old man's proposal, that a doctor's bill was a personal thing, and she would as soon allow someone else to pay it as to pay for her washing. At this Orlando giggled again, and ventured the remark that no doctor could dispense enough medicine in a year to pay her laundry bill for a month, which pleased the old lady greatly and impelled her to swing her skirt kittenishly. It was at this point that Lichu came knocking at the open door with a message for Mazarine. It related to a horse accident at what was known as One Mile Spring, and Mazarine, having frowned his wife out of the doorway, made his way downstairs and prepared for his short journey to the spring. Before he left, however, he called Li Chu aside, and what he said caused Li Chu to answer. Me get money, me do job. Me keep eyes open. Me tell you. From a window Louise had watched the colloquy, and she knew, as well as though she stood beside them, what was being said. Li Chu had told the truth, he had got the cash, and he would do the job. But not alone from Joe Mazarin did he get money. Only two mornings before, Louise, for all the extra work he had had to do during Orlando's illness, and without thought of bribery, had given him a beautiful gold ten-dollar piece with a hole in it. If the piece had been minus the hole, Li Chu would have returned it to her, for he would have served her for nothing till the end of his days, had it been possible because there was a hole in it, however, and he could put a string through it and wear it round his neck inside his waistcoat. He took it, blinking his beady eyes at her, and he said, Me watch most pedicler, Melissy. Me tell boss Mazelin ev lightling me see. And he giggled almost as Orlando might have done. After which Li Chu slip-slopped away to his work behind the kitchen. When he saw Orlando's mother in the garden and the young doctor drive to Askatoon, and Patsy Kernaghan mount an aged Caius and ride off, he clucked with his tongue and then went into the kitchen and prepared a tray on which he placed several pieces of a fine old set of china, which had belonged to Mazarine's grandmother, and was greatly prized by the old man. Then he clucked to the half-breed woman, and she made ready as sumptuous a tea as ever entered the room of a convalescent. Like a waiter at a seaside hotel, Li Chu carried the tray above his head on three fingers to the staircase, and as he mounted to the landing, called out. Welly good teamy bling gentleman. This was his way of warning Orlando guys, and whoever might be with him, of his coming. He need not have done so, for though Louise was in Orlando's room, she was much nearer to the door than she was to Orlando. 
she hastened to place a table near to Orlando, for the tray which Li Chu had brought, and, as she did so, remarked with a shock at the cherished china upon the tray. Li Chu! Li Chu! She gasped, reprovingly, for it was as though the Ark of the Covenant had been burgled. But Li Chu, clucking, slip-slopped out of the room and down the stairs as happy as an oriental soul could be. What was in the far recesses of that soul, where these two young people were concerned, must remain unrevealed. But Li Chu and the half-breed woman in their own language, which was almost without words, clucked and grunted their understanding. Left alone again, Louise found herself seated with only the table between herself and Orlando, pouring him tea and offering him white frosted cake like that dispensed at weddings, while Orlando chuckled his thanks and thought what a wonderful thing it was that a bullet in a man's side could bring the unexpected to pass and the heart's desire of a man within the touch of his fingers. Their conversation was like that of two children. She talked of her bird Richard, which she had sent to him every morning that it might sing to him, of her black cat nigger, which sat on his lap for many an hour of the day, of the dog Jumbo, which said its prayers for him to get well, for a piece of sugar that was a trick Louise had taught it long ago. Orlando talked of his horses and of his mother, who, he declared, was the most unselfish person on the whole continent, how she only thought of him, and spent her money for him, and gave to him, never thinking of herself at all. She has the youngest heart of anyone in the world, said Orlando. Louise did not even smile at that. No one with a heart that was not infantile could dress and talk as Orlando's mother dressed and talked, and so Louise said softly, I am sure her heart is a thousand years younger than mine, or younger than mine was. And then she blushed, and Orlando blushed, for he understood what was in her mind, that until they two had met, she was, as the young doctor said, a victim to senile decay. That was the nearest they had come as yet to saying anything which, being translated, as it were, through several languages, could mean love-making. Their love-making had only been by an inflection of the voice, by a soft abstraction, by a tuning of their spirits to each other. They were indeed like two children, and yet Li Chu was right when, in his dark soul, he conceived them to be lovers, and thought they would do what lovers do, hold hands and kiss and whisper, with never an end to a sentence, never a beginning. It was not that these things were impossible to them. It was not that their beating pulses, and the throbbing in them, was not the ancient passion which has overturned an empire, or made a little spot of earth as dear as heaven above. It was that these were forbidden things, and Louise and Orlando accepted that they were forbidden. How long would this position last? What would the future bring? This was only the fluttering approach of two natures, from everlasting distances. The girl had been roused out of sleep. From her understanding the curtains had been flung back so that she might see. How long would it last, this simple, unsoiled story of two lives? Orlando reached out his hand to put his cup back upon the tray. As her own hand was extended to take it, her fingers touched his. Then her face flushed, and a warm cloud seemed to bedim her eyes. There flashed into her mind the deep, overwhelming fact that for three long years a rough, heavy hand had held her captive by day, by night, in a pitiless ownership. She got to her feet suddenly, her breath came quickly, and she turned towards the door as though she meant to go. At that instant Li Chu slid softly into the room, caught up the tray, poised it on his three fingers over his head and said, Old Mazelin, he come. Be kayak. 
they heard the heavy footsteps of Joel Mazarine coming into the hallway just below. The old man, as though moved by some uncanny instinct, had come back from one mile spring by a roundabout trail. As the Chinaman came out upon the landing at the top of the stairs, Joel appeared at the bottom, in the doorway which gave upon the staircase. Two or three steps down shuffled the Chinaman, then, as it were by accident, he stumbled and fell, the tray with the beautiful china crashing down to the feet of Joel Mazarine, followed by the tumbling, chirping Li Chu. Oriental duplicity had made no wrong reckoning. The old man fell back into the hallway from the crashing china and tumbling Oriental, who plunged out into the hallway muttering and begging pardon, cursing his soul in good Chinese and bad English. Looking down on the wreck, Mazarine saw his treasured porcelain shattered. With a growl of rage he stooped and seized Li Chu by the collar, flung him out of the door, and then with his heavy boot kicked him once, twice, thrice, a dozen times, anywhere, everywhere. Li Chu, however, had done his work well. Joel Mazarine never knew the reason for the Chinaman's downfall on the stairway, for, in the turmoil, Louise had slipped away in safety. His rage had vented itself, but if he had seen Li Chu's face an hour after— as he talked to the half-breed woman in the kitchen, he might have had some qualms for his cruel assault. Passion and hatred in the face of an Oriental are not lovely things to see. Chapter 9 The Stars and Their Courses It's been a great day, great. Orlando Guise leaned lazily on the neck of the bronco he was riding, peering between its ears, over the lonely prairie, to the sunset which was making beautiful the western sky. It was as though there was a golden fire behind vast hills of mauve and pink, purple and saffron, but the glow was so soft as to suggest a flame which did not burn, which only shed radiance, color, and an ethereal mist. All the width of land and life between was full of peace as far as I could see. The plains were bountiful with golden harvest, and the activities of men were lost among the corn. Horses and cattle in the distance were as insects and in the great concave sky stars still wan from the intolerant light of their master, the sun, looked timidly out to see him burn his way down to the underworld. Great, but it might have been greater, added Orlando, gazing intently at the sunset. Yet, as he spoke, his eyes gazed at something infinitely farther away than the sunset even to the goal of his desire. He was thinking that, great as the day had been, with all he had done and seen, it lacked a glimpse of the face he had not seen for a whole month. The voice, he had not heard it since it softly cried. Oh, Orlando! When the Chinaman crashed down the staircase with the tray of cherished porcelain, and had been maltreated by the owner of Trilly. How many times since then had those words rung in his ears? Louise had never called him by name save that once, and then it was the cry of a soul surprised, the wail of one who felt a heartbreak coming on the approach of merciless fate. It was the companionship of trouble. It was the bird, pursued by a hawk, calling across the lonely valley to its mate. Oh, Orlando! He had waked in the morning with the words in his ears to make him face the day with hope and cheerfulness. It had sounded in his ears at night as he sat on the wide stoop watching the moon and listening to the night birds, or vaguely heard his mother babbling things he did not hear. It is a memorable moment for a man when he hears for the first time his little name, as the French call it, spoken by the woman he loves. It is as the sound of a bell in the distance, a familiar note with a new meaning, revealing new things of life in the panorama of the mind. 
By those two words Orlando knew what was in the mind of Louise. They were a prayer for protection and a cry for comradeship. When Louise first clasped hands with the young doctor on her arrival at Askerton, the soft appeal of her fingers had made him understand that loneliness where she lived, and to bear which she sought help. But the, oh Orlando, which was wrung from her, almost unknowingly, was the cry of one who, to loneliness, had added fear and tragedy. Yet behind the fear, tragedy and loneliness there was the revelation of a heart. A courtship is a long or a short ceremonial or convention, a make-believe, by which people pretend that they slowly come to know and love each other. But lovers know that each understands the other by one note or inflection of the voice, by one little act of tenderness. These, or one of these, tell the whole story, the everlasting truth by which men and women learn how good at its worst life is, or speak the lightning lie by which the bones of a dead world are exposed to the disillusioned soul. This had been a great day, because, in it, physical being had joyously celebrated itself in a wild business of the hills, in air so fresh and sweet that it almost sparkled to the eye, in a sun that was hot, but did not punish, at a sport by which the earliest men in the earliest age of the world made life a rare sensation. The man who has not chased a wild pony in the hills with the lasso on his arm, riding, as they say in the west, hell for leather, down the steep hillside, over the rock and the rough land, balancing on his bronco with the dexterity of a bird or a baboon, has failed to find one of life's supreme pleasures. In the foothills, many miles away from Slowdown Ranch and Tralee, there lived a herd of wild ponies, and it had been the ambition of a dozen ranchmen and bronco busters thereabouts to capture one or many. More than once Orlando had seen a little gray bronco, with legs like the wrists of a lady, with a tail like a comet, frisking among the rocks and the brushwood, or standing alert, moveless and alone upon some promontory, and he had made up his mind that if, and when, there came a day of bronco-busting, he would become a hunter of the little gray mare. When the news came that the ranchmen for miles around were preparing for the drive of the hills, he determined to take part in it, against the commands of the young doctor, who said that he would run risk in doing so, for, though his wound was healed, he should still avoid strain and fatigue. There is no fatigue like that of bronco-busting. It is not galloping on the turf. It is being shaken and tossed in a saddle which the knees can never grip, on the back of something gone mad. For the maddest, wisest, carefulest thing on earth is a bronco, which itself was once a wild pony of the hills, and has been hunted down, thrown by the lasso, saddled, bridled and heartbroken all in an hour. When the bronco which was once a wild pony sets out on the chase after its own, there is nothing like it in the world. And so Orlando found. The veteran bronco busters and ranchmen gave him no vociferous welcome as he appeared among them. Had it not been for the reputation which he already gained for courage, such as he had shown in the recent affair when he had driven off the men who were robbing Joel Mazarin, and also for an idea, steadily spreading, that he was masquerading, and that behind all, was a curly-headed, intrepid, outdoor, white man. He would not have had what he called a great day. He could not throw the lasso as well as many another, but he could ride as well as any man that ever rode, and the bronco given him to ride that day was one sufficiently unreliable in character and sure-footed in travel to test him to the utmost. He had endured the test. He had even got his little gray mare, lassoing her like a veteran. He had helped to break her, and had sent her home from the improvised corral by one of his men. 
he had then parted from the others, who had dispersed to their various ranches with their prizes, and had ridden away on the bronco with which he had done such a good day's work. He had had the thrill of the hunter, riding like any wild Indian through the hills. He had had the throb of conquest in his veins. But while other men had shouted and happily blasphemed as they rode and captured, he had only giggled in excitement. As he looked now into the sunset, he was thinking of the little gray mare, with the legs like the wrists of a lady and the soft, bright, wild eye, which had fought and fought to resist subjection, but which, overpowered by the stronger will of man, had yielded like a lady, and had been ridden away to slow down ranch, its bucking over forever, captive and subdued. Orlando was picturing the little gray mare with Louise on its back. He had no right to think of Louise, yet there was never an hour in which he did not think of her. And Louise had no right to think of Orlando, yet, sleeping and waking, he was with her. Their homes were four miles apart, although, in one sense, they were a million miles apart by law and the convention which shuts a woman off from the love of men other than her husband and yet in thought they were as near together always as though they had lain in the same cradle and grown up under the same roof-tree. There was something about the gray pony, with the look of a captive in its eye, a wildness in subjection, like the girl at Tralee, the girl suddenly come to be woman, with her free soul born into understanding, yet who was as much a captive as though in prison, and guarded by a warder with a long beard, a carnivorous head, and boots greased with tallow. Since they had parted, the day after Li Chu had averted a domestic, scene, or tragedy, the search had gone on by the mounted police dash. The riders of the plains, for the men who had attempted to rob Mazarin, and to put Orlando out of action by a bullet. Suspicion had been directed against the McMahons, but Joel Mazarin had declared that it was not the McMahons who had attacked him, although they were masked. There was nothing strange in that because, as the inspector of the riders said, that lot is too fly to do the job themselves. You bet they paid others to do it. Orlando had no wish to see the criminals caught or punished. Somehow, secretly, he looked upon the assault and his wound as a blessing. It had brought him near to his other self, his mate in the scheme of things. There was something almost pagan and primitive, something near to the very beginning of things in what these two felt for each other. It was as though they really belonged to a world of lovers that lived before the god of love was born. As Orlando sat watching the sunset, Louise's last words to him, Oh, Orlando, kept ringing in his ears. He thought of what had happened that very morning before he started for the hills. Soon after daybreak, Li Chu the Chinaman had come slip-slopping to him at Slow Down Ranch and had said to him without any preliminaries or any reason for his coming, I bling Lissy Mazelin what you like. She cly. What you want me do, I do. That Mazelin, glad am. I glad am Mazelin. Orlando had no desire for intrigue, but Li Chu stood there waiting, and the devotion the Chinaman had shown made him tear a piece of paper from his pocket book and write on it the one word. Always. He then folded the paper up until it was no bigger than a waistcoat button, and gave it to Li Chu. Also, he offered a five-dollar bill, which Li Chu refused to take. When he persisted, the Chinaman opened his loose blue jacket and showed a ten-dollar gold piece on a string around his neck. Lissy Mazelin give me that, it all plenty me, he said. You want me come, I come. What you say do, I do. I say glad am Mazelin. 
That scene came to Orlando's mind now, and it agitated him as the incident itself had not stirred him when it happened. The bronco he was riding, as though the disturbance in Orlando's breast had passed into its own willful body, suddenly became restless to be off, and as Orlando gave no encouragement, showed signs of bucking. At that moment Orlando saw in the distance, far north of both Tralee and Slowdown Ranch, a horse, ridden by a woman, galloping on the prairie. Presently as he watched the headlong gallop, the horse came down and the rider was thrown. He watched intently for a moment, and then he saw that the woman did not move, but lay still beside the fallen horse. He dug his heels into the bronco's side, and although it had done its day's work, it reached out upon the trail as though fresh from the corral. It bucked malevolently as it went, but it went. It was apparent that no one else had seen the accident. Orlando had been at a point of vantage on a lonely rise about eighty feet above the level of the prairie. Where horse and rider lay was a good two miles, but within seven minutes he had reached the spot. Flinging the bridle over the bronco's neck, he dismounted. As he did so, a cry broke from him. It was, as it were, an answer to the, Oh, Orlando! which had been ringing in his ears. There, lying upon the ground beside the horse, with its broken leg caught in a gopher's hole, was Louise. Orlando's ruddy face turned white. Something seemed to blind him for an instant, and then he was on his knees beside her, lifting up her head, feeling her heart. Presently the color came back to his face with a rush. Her heart was beating. Her pulse trembled under his fingers. She was only unconscious. But was there other injury? Was arm or leg broken? He called to her. Then with an exclamation of self-reproach, he laid her down again on the ground, ran to his bronco, caught the water bottle from the saddle, lifted her head, and poured some water between the white lips. Presently her eyes opened, and she stared confusedly at Orlando, unable to realize what had happened. Then memory came back, and with it her very lifeblood seemed to flow like water through the opening gates of a flume with all the weight of the river behind. As her face flooded, she shivered with emotion. She was resting against his knee. Her head was upon his arm. His face was very near, and there was that in his eyes which told a story that any woman, loving, would be thrilled at seeing. What restrained him from clasping her to his breast? What kept her arms by her side? The sun was gone, leaving only a glimmer behind. The swift twilight of the prairie was drawing down. Warm currents of air were passing like waves of a sea of breath over the wide plains. The stars were softly stinging the sky, and a bright moon was asserting itself in the growing dusk. Here they were who, without words or acts, had been to each other what Adam and Eve were in the garden, without furtiveness, and guiltless of secret acts which poisoned love. What restrained them was native, childlike camaraderie, intense, unusual, and strange. The world would call them romancists if they believed that this restraint could be. But there was something more. With all their frank childlikeness, there was also a shyness, a reserve, which would not have been, if either had ever eaten of the fruit of understanding until they met each other for the first time. Are you, are you hurt? He asked, his voice calmer than his spirit, his heart beating terribly hard. I'm all right, she answered. I fell soft. You see, I'm very light. No bones broken? Are you sure? He asked solicitously. She sat erect, drawing away from his arms and the support of his knee. Don't you see my legs and arms are all right? 
Help me up, please, she added and stretched out a hand. Then, all at once, she saw the horse lying near. Again she shivered, and her hand was thrown out in a gesture of pain. Oh, Cece, she cried. His leg is broken. She loved animals far more than human beings. There were good reasons for it. She had fared hard in life at the hands of men and women, because the only ones with whom, in her seclusion, she had had to do, had sacrificed her, all save one the man beside her. Animal life had something in it akin to her own voiceless being. Her spirit had never been vocal until Orlando came. Oh, how wicked I've been, she cried. I couldn't bear it any longer. He wouldn't let me ride alone, go anywhere alone. I had to do it. I'd never ridden this horse before. My own mare wasn't fit. Cece. It's my ankle that ought to be broken, not his. Orlando got to his feet. Look the other way, he said. Turn round, please. I'll put him out of pain. He bolted with you, and he'd have killed you, if he could, but that doesn't matter. He can't be saved. Turn round, don't look this way. She had been commanded to do things all her life, first by her mother, tyrant-hearted and selfish, and then by her husband, an overlord, with a savage soul, and she had obeyed always, because she always seemed to be in the grasp of something against which no pressure could avail. She was being commanded now, but there was that in the voice which, while commanding her, made her long to do as she was bid. It was an obedience filled with passion, resigning itself to the will of a force which was all gentleness, but oh, so compelling. She buried her face in her hands, and presently Orlando had opened a vein in the chestnut's neck, and its lifeblood slowly ebbed away. As he turned towards her again, Orlando was startled by a sudden action on the part of his bronco. Whether it was the smell of blood which frightened it, or death itself, which has its own terrors to animal life, or whether it was as though a naked, shivering animal soul passed by, the bronco started, shied and presently broke into a trot, then, before Orlando could reach it, into a gallop, and was away down the prairie in the direction of Slowdown Ranch. That's queer, he said, and he gave a nervous little laugh. It's the worst of luck, Anne, and we're twelve miles from Tralee, he added slowly. It's terrible, Louise said, her fingers twisting together in an effort at self-control. Don't you see how terrible it is? she asked, looking into Orlando's troubled face but cheerful eyes. You couldn't walk that distance, of course, he remarked. She endeavored to get to her feet, but seemed to give way. He reached out his hands. She took them, and he helped her up. His face was anxious. Are you sure you're not hurt? he asked. There's nothing broken, she answered. No bones anyway. But I don't feel. She swayed. He put an arm around her. I don't feel as if I could walk even a mile. She continued. It's shaken me so. Or else you're hurt badly inside. He said apprehensively. No, no, I'm sure not. She answered. It's only the shock. Can you walk a little? He asked. This poor horse. Let's get away from it. There's a good place over there. See. He pointed to a little rise in the ground where were a few stunted trees and some long grass and shrubs. Can you walk? Oh, yes, I'm all right, she answered nervously. I don't need your arm. I can walk by myself. I think not, well, not yet anyhow, 
he answered soothingly. Please do as you're told. I'm keeping my arm around you for the present. Always in the past she had obeyed, when commanded by her mother or husband, with an apathy which had smothered her youth. Now her youth seemed to drink eagerly a cup of obedience, as though it were the wine of life itself. She even longed to obey the voice whispering in her soul from ever so far away. Close, close to him. Home is in his arms. With all her unconscious revelation of herself, however, there was that in her which was pure maidenliness. For, married as she was, she had never in any real sense been a wife, or truly understood what wifedom meant, or heard in her heart the call of the cradle. She had been the victim of possession, which had meant no more to her than to be, as it were, subjected daily to the milder tortures of the Inquisition. Yet she knew and could realize to the full that a power which had her in control, which possessed her by the rights of the law, prevented her, and would prevent her by whatever torture was possible, from friendship, alliance, or whatever it might be, with Orlando. She knew the law one wife to one husband, and the wife to look neither to the right nor to the left, to the east nor to the west, to the north nor to the south, but to remain, and be constant in remaining, the helpmeet, the housewife, the sole property of her husband, no matter what that husband might be, vinous, vicious, vagrant, vengeful, or any other things, good or bad. Why don't you look glad when you see me come in? Joel Mazarin remarked to her suddenly the day before. If you'd had some husbands, you might have reason for being the statue and the dummy you are. Am I a drunkard? Am I a thief? Am I a nighthawk? Do I go off looking for other women? Don't I keep the commandments? Ain't you got a home here as good as any in the land? Didn't I take you out of poverty, and make you head of all this, with people to wait on you and all the rest of it? That was the way he had talked, and somehow she had not seemed able to bear it, and she had said to him, in unexpected revolt, that her tongue was her own, and what was in her mind was her own, even if her body wasn't. Then, in a fury, he had caught his riding whip from the wall to lash her with it, just when Li Chu the Chinaman appeared with a message which he delivered at the appropriate moment, though he had had it to deliver for some time. It was to the effect that the clerk of the court in the neighboring town of Waterway wished to see him at once on urgent business. The message had been left by a rancher in passing. As Li Chu delivered the word, he managed to put himself between Mazarin and his wife in such a way as to enrage the old man, who struck the Chinaman twice savagely across the shoulders with the whip and then stamped out of the house, invoking God to punish the rebellious and the heathen, while Li Chu, shrinking still from the cruel blows, clucked in his throat. There was something in the sound which belonged to the abyss dividing the eastern from the western races. That night Louise had refused to go to bed, but at last, fearing physical force, had obeyed, and had lain with her face to the wall, close up to it, letting the cold plaster cool her hot palms, for now she burned with a fire which was consuming the debris of an old life, the fire of knowledge, for which she had to pay so heavily. You couldn't walk even a little of the way to Trilly, could you? asked Orlando, when they had reached a shrub-covered hillock. No, I couldn't walk it, I'm so shaken. I'm terribly weak, I tremble all over, she added, as she sat down upon a stone. But if I don't, if I don't go back, oh, you know. Yes, I know answered Orlando. He's the sort that would horsewhip a woman. He started to do it yesterday, she answered. But Lichu came in time, 
and he horsewhipped Li Chu instead. I wouldn't myself be horsewhipping Chinamen much, said Orlando. They're a queer lot. Suddenly she got to her feet. I won't stand it. I won't stand it any longer, she cried. That is why today, although he told me I mustn't ride, I took that new chestnut and saddled it and rode. I didn't care where I rode. I didn't care how fast the horse went. I didn't care what happened to me. And here I am, and but oh, I do care what happens to me, she added, her voice breaking. I'm, I'm frightened of him. I'm frightened, in spite of myself. He doesn't treat me right, she added. And I'm terribly frightened. She raised her eyes to Orlando's face in the growing dusk. There is no twilight in that prairie land, and there was that in it which made her feel that she must not give way any further. In Orlando's veins was southern sap, mixed with northern blood. In Orlando's eyes was a sudden look belonging to that which defies the law. Don't, don't look like that, she exclaimed. Oh, Orlando! Once more he heard her speak his name, and it was like salve to a wound. He put a hand upon himself. I'll go to Tralee, he said, if you don't mind waiting here alone. I can't. I will not wait alone. If you go, then I'll go too somehow. It's twelve miles. You couldn't get there till midnight, and you couldn't get back here with a wagon for another couple of hours from that. It would be daylight then. I can't stay here alone. I'm frightened, and I'm cold. Wait a minute, said Orlando. He ran back to the dead horse, unloosed the saddle from its back, detached from it a raincoat strapped to the pommel, and brought it to her. This will keep you warm he said. It isn't cold tonight. You only feel cold because you're upset and nervous. I'm frightened, she answered. Frightened of everything. Listen. Don't you hear something stirring? There. She peered fearfully into the dusk behind them. Probably, he answered. There are lots of prairie dogs and things about. The more you listen, the more you hear on the prairie, especially at night. There was silence for a moment and then he added, My bronco steers straight for Slow Down Ranch, and that'll bring my men. You can be quite sure there'll be a search party out from Tralee, too, at the first streak of dawn. You can't make the journey, so the only thing to be done is to wait here. That coat will keep you from getting cold, and I'll cut a lot of long grass and make you a bed here. Also, the grass is warm, and I'll cover you with it and with pine branches. I can't lie down, she answered. No, I can't. I'm afraid. It's all so strange, and tomorrow he... There's nothing to be frightened about, he interrupted. Nothing at all, Louise. It was the first time he had ever addressed her by name, and it made her shiver with a new feeling. It seemed to tell a long, long story without words. You must do what I ask you to do, whatever I ask you to do, he repeated. Will you? Yes, anything you ask me I'll do she answered, and then added quickly, for you won't ask me to do anything I don't want to do. That's the difference. You understand, Orlando. A few minutes later he had found a suitable place to make a kind of bed of grass for her, and had prepared it, with his knife, cutting the branches of small shrubs and grass and the scanty branches of the pine. When it was finished he came to her and said, It's all ready. Come and lie down, and I'll cover you up. She got to her feet slowly, 
for she was in pain greater than she knew, so absorbed was her mind in this new life suddenly enveloping her, and then she said in a low voice, No, not yet, I can't yet. I want to sit here. I've never felt the night like this before. It's wonderful, and I'm not nearly so cold now. I know I oughtn't to be cold at all, in the middle of summer like this. She paused, and seemed lost in contemplation of the sky. After a moment she added, I never knew I could feel so far away from all the world as I do tonight. But the sky seems so near, and the moon and the stars so friendly. You haven't slept out of doors as I have hundreds of times, he answered. The night and I are brothers, the stars are my little cousins, and the moon, he giggled in his boyish way, is my maiden aunt. She's so prudish and so kind and friendly, as you say. She's like an aunt I had, Aunt Samantha. She was my father's sister. I used to love her to visit my mother. She always brought me things, and she gave them to me as if they were on silver dishes, like a ceremony. She was so prim, I used to call her Aunt Primrose. She made me feel as if I could do anything I liked and break any law I pleased. But all the time, like a saint in a stained glass window, she always seemed to be saying, Yes, you'd like to, but you mustn't. She was just like the moon. I'm well acquainted with the moon, Anne. Hush, Louise interrupted. Don't you hear something stirring, there behind us? He laughed. Of course something's always stirring behind us on the prairie, and things you can't hear at all in the day are almost loud at night. There are thousands of sounds that never get to your ears when the sun is busy, but when Aunt Primrose Moon is saying, Hush! Hush! To the naughty children of this world, you can hear a whole new population at work, cracking away like mad. Say, ain't I letting myself go tonight? He added, giggling again and sitting down beside her. I'm going to give you just half an hour, and at the end of that half hour you've got to go to sleep. I can't, I can't, she said scarcely above a whisper. As though in response to an unspoken thought, he said casually, I'm going to walk a while when you've lain down, and then... He pointed to a spot about twenty yards away. Do you see the two big stones there? Well, when I've finished my walk and my talk with Auntie Primrose, he laughed up at the moon. I'm going to sit down there and snooze till daylight, he pointed again. Right over there beside those two rocks. That's my bed. Do you see? She did not reply at once, but a long sigh came from her lips. You'll be cold, she said. No, it's a hot night he answered. I'm too hot as it is, and he loosened his heavy red shirt at the throat. If I've got to go to bed in half an hour, she said presently, tell me more about your Aunt Samantha, and about yourself, and your home before you came out here, and what you did when you were a little boy, tell me everything about yourself. She was forgetting truly for the moment, and the man who raised his hand against her yesterday, and the life she had lived. Or was it only that she had grown young during these last two months, and the young can so easily forget? You want to hear? You really want to hear? He asked. Say, it won't be a very interesting story. Better let me tell you about the bronco-busting today. No, I want to hear about yourself. She looked intently at him for an instant, and then her eyes closed, and the long lashes touched her cheek. There was something very willful in her beauty and her body too had delicate, melancholy lines strange in one so young. She was not conscious that, in her dreamy abstraction, 
she was leaning towards him. It was but an instant, though it seemed to him an interminable time, in which he fought the fierce desire to clasp her in his arms, and kissed the lips which, to his ears, said things more wonderful than he had ever dreamed of in his friendship with the night and the primrose moon. He knew, however, that if he did, she would not go back to Tralee tomorrow, that tomorrow she would defy the Leviathan, and that tomorrow he would not have the courage to say the things he must say to the evil-hearted master of Tralee, who, he knew, would challenge them with ugly accusations. He must be able to look old Mazarine fearlessly in the face. He would not be the slave of opportunity. He was going to fight clean. She was here beside him in the warm loneliness of the northern world, and he was full-grown in body and brain, with all the human emotions alive in him. Yet he would fight clean. Not for a half-hour, but for nearly an hour he told her what she wished to know, while she listened in a happy dream. And when at last she lay down, she refused his coverlet of dry grass, saying that she was quite warm. She declared that she did not even need the coat he had taken from the saddle of the dead horse, but he wrapped it around her, and saying, Good night, almost brusquely, marched away in the light of the dying moon. The night wore on. At first Louise's ears were sensitive to every sound, and there were stirrings in the hillock by which she slept but she comforted herself with the thought that they were the stirrings of lonely little waifs of nature like herself. Though she dared not let the thought take form, yet she feared, too, the sound of human footsteps. By and by, however, in the sweet quiet of the night and the somnolent light of the moon, sleep captured her. When at last Orlando's footsteps did crush the dry grass, the sound failed to reach her ears, for it was then not very far from daylight, and she had slept for several hours. Sleep had not touched Orlando's eyes when, sitting down by the stones which were to mark his resting place, he waited for Louise to wake. Chapter 10 The Moon Was Not Alone Out on the prairie under the light of the stars a man had fought the first great battle of his life, and had emerged victorious. There are no drawn battles in the struggles of the soul. As Orlando fought, he was tortured by the thought that none would believe the truth tomorrow when it was told and that there would be penalty though there was no crime. As for Louise, she could have returned, almost blindly defiant, to her world, hand in hand with Orlando. And yet, when morning came, and her eyes opened on the prairie at daybreak, with life stirring everywhere, she was glad of the victory, though the shadow of a great trouble to come was showing in her eyes. She knew what she had to face utterly, and that she had no proof of her perfect innocence. It was of little use for them to call upon heaven to witness what the night had been, and Joel Mazarin, who distrusted every man and woman, would distrust her with a sternness which guilt only could effectively defy. Orlando's enforced gaiety as he invited her to a breakfast of a couple of biscuits, left from yesterday's bronco-busting, heartened her, yet both were conscious of the make-believe. They realized they were helpless in the grip of harsh circumstance. It was almost enough to make them take advantage of calumny and the traps set for them by fate and join hands forever. As they looked into each other's eyes, the same hopeless yet reckless thought flickered, flickered, and vanished. Yet as they looked out over the prairie towards Tralee, to which Lees must presently return, a rebellious sort of joy possessed them. The discord of their thoughts was like music beside what had passed at Tralee. Then nothing relieved the black sullen rage of Joel Mazarin. He had returned to the house where his voice had always been able to summon his slaves, and to know that they would come, Chinamen, half-breed, 
wife. Now he called, and the wife did not come. On the new chestnut she had ridden away on the prairie, so the half-breed woman had said, as hard as he could go. He had scanned the prairie till night came, without seeing a sign of her. His black imagination instantly conceived the worst that Louise might do. It was not in him ever to have the decent alternative. He questioned the half-breed woman closely. He savagely interrogated the Chinaman, and then he declared that they lied to him, that they knew more than they said, and when he was unable to bear it any longer, he mounted his horse and galloped over to slow down ranch. As he went, he kept swearing to himself that Louise had flown thither, and anger made his brain malignant. He could scarcely frame his words intelligibly when he arrived at Slow Down Ranch. There he was presently convinced that his worst suspicions were true, for Orlando also had not returned. He saw it all. They had agreed to meet, they had met, they had eloped and were gone. His beady eyes were those of serpents watching for the instant to strike, and his words burst over the head of Orlando's mother like shrapnel. For once, however, the feudal, fantastic mother rose higher than herself, and declared that her son had never run away from, or with, anything in his life, that he, Joel Mazarine, had never had anything worth her son's running away with, and that her son, when he came back, would make him ask forgiveness as he had never asked it of his God. Indeed, the gaudy little lady stood in her doorway and chattered her maledictions after him, as he rode back again towards truly muttering curses which no class leader in the Methodist church ought even to quote for pious purposes. Joel Mazarine had flattered himself that he had everything life could give, money, property and a garden of youth in which his old age could loiter and be glad, and that he should be defied suddenly and his garden made desolate, that the lines of his good fortune should be crossed, caused him to rage like any heathen. His monstrous egotism made him like some infuriated bull in the arena, with the banderios sticking in his hot hide. The two people whom he cursed were in Elysium compared to the place where he tortured himself. There are desert birds that silently surround a rattlesnake, as he sleeps, with little bundles of cactus heads and their million needles, so that, when the reptile wakes, it cannot escape through the palisade of bristling weapons by which it is surrounded and in ghoulish anger it strikes its fangs into its own body until it dies. Just such a helpless rage held Joel Mazarine, and his religion did not suggest seeking comfort at that throne of grace to which he had so publicly prayed on occasions. Night held him prowling in his own coverts. Morning found him yellow and mottled, malicious, but now silent. He somehow felt that he would know the truth and the whole truth soon. He ate his pork and beans for breakfast with the appetite of a ravenous animal. He put pieces of the pork chop in his mouth with his fingers. He gulped his coffee. But all the time he kept his eyes on the open door, as though he expected some messenger to announce that Providence had stricken his rebellious wife by sudden death. It seemed to him that nature and Jehovah must unite to avenge him. After three hours of further waiting he determined to go into Askerton. He would have bills printed advertising for Louise as he had done for stray cattle. He would have notices put in the newspapers proclaiming that his wife was strayed or stolen and must be put in pound when discovered. At the moment he decided thus, he caught sight of a wagon approaching from the north. It was near enough for him to see that there was a woman in it, and the eyes of the half-breed hired woman, possessing the Indian farsight, saw that it was Louise, and told her master so. Ten minutes later Louise stood in front of the master of Tralee, and the master of Tralee filled the doorway.
What you want here? He asked of her with blurred rage in his voice. I want to go to my room. Louise answered quietly but firmly. Please stand aside. Now that Louise was face to face with her foe, a new spirit had suddenly possessed her, and standing beside his bronco, a hand on its neck, Orlando almost smiled, for this was Louise with a new nature. There was defiance and courage in her face, not the apprehension which had almost overwhelmed her as they started back to Tralee, having been rescued by the search party from Slowdown Ranch. The night had done something to Louise which was making itself felt. You think you can come back here after what you've done, after where you've been, the likes of you? Mazarine snarled unmoving. You think you can? Louise turned swiftly to look at Orlando and the three men, one riding and two in the wagon as though to call them an evidence of her innocence. But there came to her eyes a sudden fire of courage, and she turned again to Mazarine and said, I'm your wife by the law, just as much your wife today as yesterday. You treat me before strangers as if I were a criminal. I'm not going to be treated that way. I've got my rights. Stand back and let me in. Stand back, Joel Mazarine, she said, and she took a step forward, child though she was as if she would strike him. Something had transformed her. To Orlando she seemed scarcely real. The shrinking, colorless child of a few weeks had suddenly become a woman, and such a woman. I'll tell you in my own time where I've been and what I've done. She continued. I want to go upstairs. Stand out of the doorway. There was a movement behind her. A man in the wagon and the one on his horse seemed to grow angry and threatening. The ranchman dropped from his horse. Only Orlando stood cool, quiet and ominously watchful. Mazarine did not fail to notice the movement of the two men. Presently Orlando's voice said slowly and calmly, Stand back, Mazarine. Let her go to her room. This is a free country, and she's free in her own house. It's her house until you've proved she's got no right there. Then he added with sharp insistence and menace. Stand back. Damn you, Mazarine! Orlando did not move as he spoke, but there was a look in his face which an enemy would not care to see. Mazarine, in spite of his rage, quailed before the sharp, menacing voice so little in tune with its reputation for giggling, and stepping back, he let Louise pass. Then he plunged forward out of the doorway. That's right. Come outside, said Orlando scornfully. Come out into the open. His voice became lower. There was something deadly in it, boy as he was. Come out, you hypocrite, and listen to what I've got to say. Listen to the truth I've got to tell you. If you don't listen, I'll horsewhip you, that'd horsewhip a woman, till you can't stand, you loathsome old dog. Yes, he took his horsewhip to her yesterday, he added to the spectators, who muttered angrily, for the West is chivalrous towards women. Something near to madness possessed Orlando. No one had ever seen him as he was at that moment. Down through generations had come to him some iron thing that suddenly revealed itself in him, as something had just suddenly revealed itself in Louise. The other three men, two in the wagon and one beside his horse stared at him as though they had seen him for the first time. They were unready for the passion that possessed him. Not a muscle of his body appeared to move. He was as motionless as the trunk of a tree. But in his eyes and his voice there was, as one of the ranchers said afterwards, Hell, and then some more. Listen to me, he said again, and his voice was low and husky now. 
Yesterday I was bronco-busting. Thereupon he told the whole story of what had happened since he had seen Louise thrown from her chestnut on the prairie. He told how Louise was too shaken and ill to attempt the journey back to Tralee, and how they had camped where they were, near the dead horse. As Orlando talked, the old man was seized by terrible hatred and jealousy. You needn't tell me the rest, he broke in, his hands savagely opening and shutting. I guess I understand everything. The words had scarcely left his mouth when from the wagon a man said, Wait, wait, mister. I got something to say. He sprang to the ground and ran between Mazarine and Orlando. This is where I come in, he said, as Louise's face appeared at an upper window, and she listened. You don't know me. Well, I know you. Everybody knows you, and nobody likes you. I know what happened last night. I'm a brother of your fellow Christian Rigby, the druggist, over there in Askerton. He's a Methodist. I'm not. I'm only good. I've been a lot o' things, and nothing in the end. Well, you hearken to my tale. I was tramping with my bundle on my back across the prairie to Askatoon from Waterway. I'm a sundowner, as they say in Australia. When the sun goes down, I down to my bed wherever I be on the prairie. I was asleep I'd been half drunk, when the chestnut threw your wife and broke its leg, but I was awake when he rode up. He pointed to Orlando. I was awake, and so I watched. I knew who she was. I knew who he was. He pointed to Orlando again. I guessed I'd see something. I did. I watched them two people all night. There was a moon. I could see. I wasn't fifteen feet from her all night and I gene the others when they come to rescue. I guess I got the truth, and I guess if you want any evidence about me you can get it. Lots of people know me out here. I ain't got any house or any home, and I get drunk sometimes, and I ain't got money to buy meals with, lots of times, but nobody ever knowed me lie. That's what ruined me, I'd been too truthful. Well, I'm not lying now, mister. I'm telling you the God help me truth. He's a gentleman. He pointed again to Orlando. He's a gentleman from away back in God's country, wherever that is, and she's the best of the best of the very best. You can bet your greasy old boots and ugly face that you've got a bigger fortune in that wife of yours than you've any right to. Say, she's a queen, mister, and don't you forget it, and— He drawled out his words. You go inside your house and get down on your knees, same as you do in the meeting house and thank the Lord you love so well for all his blessings. As my friend here said a little while back, he pointed to Orlando again. Damn you, Mazarine, go and hide yourself. The old man stood for a moment dumbfounded. Then, without a word, he turned and hunched inside the house. He raised his horsewhip aging a woman, did he? said one of Orlando's ranchmen. Ain't that a matter we got to take notice of? Boys, said Orlando as he motioned them to be off. Mrs. Mazarine can take care of herself. You'll forget what's happened, if you want to play up to her. If she needs you, she'll be sure to let you know. A moment afterwards they were all on their way on the road leading to Slow Down Ranch. He didn't giggle much that time, said one of the ranchmen of Orlando, as they moved on. Chapter 11 Louise The young doctor had had a trying day. Certain of his cases had given him anxiety. His drives had been long and fatiguing. He had had little sleep for several nights, and he was what Patsy Kernaghan had called brittle, 
for when Patsy was in a vexed condition, he used to say, I'm so brittle I'll break if you look at me. As the young doctor drew his chair up to the supper table and looked at his food with a critical air, he was very brittle. For one born in Enniskillen he had an even nature, but its evenness was more the result of mental control than temperament. He sighed as he looked at the marrow bones which, as a rule, gave him joy when their turn came in the weekly menu. He eyed askance the baked potatoes, and the salad waiting for his skilled hand only gave him an extra feeling of fatigue. Most men in a like state say, I don't know what's the matter with me. And yet many a one has been stimulated out of it, away from it, by the soft voice and friendly hand of a woman. There was, however, no woman to distract the overworked young doctor by her freshness, drawn from the reservoir of her vitality. And that was a pity, because, as Patsy Kernaghan many a time said, Ah, doctor dear, what's the good of a tongue to a wagon if there's only one horse to draw it? Sure, you'll think a lot more of yourself when you're able to stand at the head of your own table and say grace for two at least, and thanksgiving for Manny, if it's the will of God. The young doctor did not know why he was so brittle, but the truth is he was feeding on himself, and that is a poor business. Every dog knows it is good to feed on the knuckle of a goat if he hasn't got a beef bone, and every real man knows, though to know anything at all he must have been married, that any marriage is better than no marriage at all because whether it's happy or unhappy, it makes you concerned for someone besides yourself, if you have any soul or sense at all. The young doctor was under the delusion that he loved his lonely table and the making of a simple salad for a simple man, but then he came from Ireland and had imagination, and that is always a curse when it isn't a blessing, for there is nothing between the two. At the end of his troubled day he almost cursed the salad as it crinkled in the dish just slightly rubbed with garlic. He was turning away in apathy from it, from the bones with the marrow oozing out of the ends, from the bursting baked potatoes, from the beautiful crusts of brown bread, when he heard the doorbell ring. At the sound his face set as though it were mortar. He wanted no patience this night, but from the peremptory sound of the bell he was sure someone had come who needed medicine or the knife, and he could refuse either, for was he not at everybody's beck and call, the medicine man whose door was everybody's door. Damnation, he said aloud, and turned towards the door expectantly. Then he bid himself to wait, and he did not wait long. Presently he heard a voice say, I must see him. And the door opened wide, and Louise Mazarine stepped into the room. Her face was pale and distraught. Her blue eyes, with their long, melancholy lashes, stared at him in appealing apprehension. Her lips were almost white. Her hands trembled out towards him. I've come, I've come, she said. It had the finality of the last chapter of a book. The young doctor closed the door, ignoring for the instant the hands held out to him. After all, he was a very sane young doctor, and he had the faculty of keeping his head, and his heart, and his own counsel. Also he knew there was an inquisitive old servant in the hallway. When the door was closed, he turned round on Louise slowly, and then he held out his hands to her for she was shrinking away, as though he had repulsed her. He pressed her trembling hands in the way that only faithful friendship shows, and said, Yes, I know you've come, but tell me what you've come for. I couldn't bear it any longer, she said brokenly. I'm not made of steel or stone. It's been terrible. He doesn't speak to me except to order me to do this or that. I haven't done anything wrong, 
and I won't be treated so. I won't. When he made me kneel down by him in the trail and tried to make me pray to be forgiven of my sins, I couldn't stand it. I don't know what my sins are, and I won't be converted if I don't want to. I'm not a slave. I'm of age. I'm twenty. There was no sign of fatigue now in the young doctor's face. Something had called him out of himself, and this human need had done what a wife's hand might have done, or the welcome of a child. No, you're not twenty, he declared, with a friendly smile. You aren't ten. You are only one. In fact, I think you're only just born. He did not speak as lightly as the words read. In his voice there was that compassionate irony with which men shield those for whom they care. It means protection and defense. Somehow she seemed to him like a small bird on its first flight from the nest, or, as Patsy Kernaghan would have said, a tame lamb loose in a zoological garden. So because you won't pray and can't bear it any longer, you run away from him and come to me, the other remarked with a sorry smile, pouring out a glass of wine from a decanter that stood on the table. Drink this, he said presently, pushing her down gently into a chair with one hand and holding the glass to her lips. Drink it every drop. As I said, you've only run away from one master to fall into another master's hands. You're a wicked girl. Drink it every drop. That's right. He took the empty glass from her, put it on the table, and then stood and looked at her meditatively, fastening her eyes with his own. More than her eyes were fastened, however. Her mind was also under control, but that was because she believed in him so. Yes, you're a wicked girl, he said decisively. She shuddered and shrank back. In her eyes was a helpless look, very different from that which she had given not so many days before when, with Orlando Guise behind her, she had defied her aged husband in his doorway, and her defiance had moved him from her path. Then she had been inspired by the fact that the man she loved was near her that she had been wrongfully accused and was ready to fight. Afterwards, however, when she was alone, the sterile presence of Joel Mazarin, his merciless eyes, his hopeless religious tyranny, had worn upon her as his past violence had never done. Wicked! Did this man, then, believe her guilty? Did he, of all men, think that the night upon the prairie alone with Orlando had been her undoing? Had not the brother of Rigby the chemist borne witness with his own eyes to her complete innocence? If the young doctor disbelieved, then indeed she was undone. You don't think that of me, of me, she gasped, her lips all white again. She got to her feet excitedly. You shall not believe it of me. No, I did not say I believe that, the other remarked almost casually. But if I did believe it, I don't know that it would make much difference to me. Fate or God Almighty, or whatever it was, had stacked the cards against you. When I said it was wicked, I meant you did wrong in rushing away from your husband and coming to me. I suppose you have definitely left your husband, eh? You've left him, as they say? He had an incorrigible sense of humor, as well as an infinite common sense. He wanted to break this spell of tense emotion which possessed her. So he pursued a new course. Don't you think it's rather hard on me? he continued. I'm a lone man in this house, with only one old woman to protect me, and I'm unmarried. I've a reputation to lose, and there are lots of mothers and daughters hereabouts. Besides, a medical practice is hard to get and not easy to keep. What do you mean by making a refuge of me, 
when there's nothing for me in it, not even the satisfaction of going into the divorce court with you. You wicked Mrs. Mazarin. Oh, don't speak like that, Louise interjected. Please don't. Don't scold me. I had to come. I was going mad. The young doctor had the case well in hand. He had eased the terrible tension. He was slowly reducing her to the normal. It was the only thing to do. What did Mazarin do or say to you that made you run away? Come now, didn't you first make up your mind to go to Slow Down Ranch, to Orlando? She flushed. Yes, but only for a minute. Then I thought of you, because I knew you could help me as no one else could. Everybody believes in you. But then Li Chu. Oh, Li Chu. So Li Chu comes into this, eh? So he said fly to Orlando, eh? Well, that's what he would do. But why Li Chu, a Chinaman? Tell me, what does Li Chu know? Quickly she told him the story of the day when Joel Mazarin had almost surprised her in Orlando's room. How Li Chu had saved the situation by falling down the staircase with the priceless porcelain, and how Mazarin had kicked him, manhandled, him, as they say in the West. Chinamen don't like being kicked, especially Chinamen of Li Chu's station, remarked the young doctor meditatively. You don't know, of course, that Li Chu was a prince or a big bug of some sort in his own country. Why he left China I don't know, but I do chance to know that if another chinky meets Li Chu carrying a basket on his shoulders, or a package in his hand, he kowtows, and takes it away from him, and carries it himself. No, I don't know why Li Chu is here in Askatun, or why he's such a slave to Mrs. Mazarin but I do know that he's a different-looking man when a chinky runs up against him than when he's choring at Tralee. A sick Chinaman told me only a week ago that Li Chu was once big high-boss Chinaman in Pekin, and so the Mandarin advised you to fly to Orlando, did he? I wonder if it's a way they have in China. But I wouldn't go. I've come to you, Patsy Kernaghan brought me, Louise urged. Yes, I see you've come to me, remarked the young doctor dryly. And you've stayed about long enough for me to feel your pulse and diagnose your case. And now you're going back with Patsy Kernaghan to your own home. She trembled. Then she seemed to strengthen herself in defiance. What a change it was from the child of a few weeks ago. Indeed, of a few moments ago. The same passionate determination which seized her when she faced Mazarin with Orlando possessed her again. With her whole being palpitating, she said, I will not go back. I will not go back. I will kill myself first. That would be a useless sacrifice of yourself and others, the young doctor answered quietly. Seeing that the new thing in her was not to be conquered in a moment, he quickly made up his mind what to do. See, he continued, you needn't go back to Tralee tonight, but you're not going to stay here, dear child. I'll take you over to Nolan Doyle's ranch, to Mrs. Doyle. You'll spend the night there and we'll think about tomorrow when tomorrow comes. You certainly can't stay here. I'm not going to have it. Bless you, you're neither so young nor so old as all that. Suddenly he grasped both her arms and looked her in the face. My dear young lady, he said gently, I'm not your only friend, but I'm a stout friend, so stout that there isn't a mount can carry us both together. When you ride, I walk. When I ride, you walk, you understand? We don't walk or ride together. I'm taking care of you. Your life is too good to be ruined by rashness. You're in a state, 
as my old housekeeper would say, but you'll be all right presently. As soon as I've made a salad and had a marrowbone, you and I and Patsy Kernaghan are going to Nolan Doyle's ranch. My dear, you must do what I say, and if you do, you'll be happy yet. I don't see how, quite, but it is so, and meanwhile, you mustn't make any mistakes. You must play the game. And now come and have some supper. She waved her hand in protest. I can't eat, she said. Indeed I can't. Well, you can drink, he answered. You shall not leave this house alive unless you have a pint of milk with a little dash of what Patsy calls will be joyful in it. He left the room for a moment, while she sat watching the door as a prisoner might watch for the return of a friendly jailer. He had a curious influence over her. It was wholly different from that of Orlando. Presently he returned. It's all right, he said. Patsy and you and I will be at Nolan Doyle's ranch in another hour. I've sent word to Mrs. Doyle. I've ordered your milk punch too, and now I think I'll make my salad. You never saw me make a salad, he added, smiling. I've done some successful operations in my day. I've played about with bones and sinews, proud of my work sometimes, but the making of a perfect salad is the proud achievement of a mastermind. He laughed like a boy. Come hither, come hither, my little daughter, and do not tremble so. He said so cheerfully as to be almost jeering. His cheerfulness was not in vain, for a smile stole to her lips, though it only flickered for an instant and was gone. For all that, he knew he had saved the situation, and that another chapter of the life history of Orlando and Louise had been ended. A fresh chapter would begin tomorrow, but sufficient unto the day was the evil thereof. Chapter 12 Man Unnatural Mazarin discovered the flight of Lee soon after she had gone. He had not been five hundred yards from the house since she returned with Orlando after the night spent upon the prairie, save when he had been obliged to go into Askerton and had taken her with him, dumb and passive. She had been a prisoner, tied to the stirrups of her captor, and he had berated her, had preached at her. As Louise had said, once on the way to Askerton, he had even tried to make her kneel down in the dust of the trail and plead with heaven to convict her of sin. On the evening of Lise's flight, however, he had been forced to go to a neighboring ranch, and had commanded Li Chu to keep a strict watch at the windows of her room to see that she did not attempt escape. She could not escape by the door of the room because he had the key in his pocket. Li Chu was not a stern jailer, however. Mazarin had not been gone three minutes before the Chinaman had touched with Louise. He did more. He threw up into the open window of her room a screwdriver, with which she took the old-fashioned door off its hinges, after half an hour's work. Then, leaving a note on the table of the dining room, to say that she could not bear it any longer, that she would never come back, and that she meant to be free, she summoned Patsy Kernaghan and fled to the young doctor. When Mazarin returned and found her note, he plunged up the stairs to her bedroom, his pious wrath gurgling in his throat, only to find the door locked, for Li Chu had promptly restored it to its hinges after Louise had gone, afterwards dropping from the high window like a cat, without hurt. Li Chu, blinking, opaque, immobile, save for his piercing and mysterious eyes, had no explanation to give. All he said was, Me no see all sides how same time, so suggesting that, as the room had windows on all three sides, Louise must have escaped while he made his supposed sentry go, 
slip-slopping round the house. Mazarin showed what he thought by spitting in Li Chu's face, and then rushing into the house to get the rawhide whip with which he had punished the Chinaman before, and with which he had threatened his wife. When he returned a moment afterwards, Li Chu was nowhere to be seen, but in his place were two other Chinamen who had, as it were, fallen from the skies, standing where Li Chu had stood, immobile, blinking and passive like Li Chu, their hands lost in the long sleeves of their coats, their pigtails so tightly braided as, in seeming, to draw their slanting eyelids still to greater incline, and to give a look of petrified intentness to their faces. Something in their attitude gave Mazarin apprehension. It was as though Li Chu had been transformed by some hellish magic into two other Chinamen. The rage of his being seemed to stupefy him. He could not resist the sensation of the unnatural. What do you want? How did you come here? He asked of the two in a husky voice. We want speak Li Chu. We come see Li Chu, answered one of the Chinamen impassively. He was here a minute ago, answered Mazarin gruffly. Then he turned away, going swiftly toward the kitchen and calling to Li Chu. As he went, he was conscious of low, cackling laughter. But when he turned to look, the two Chinamen stood where he had left them, blinking and immobile. The uncanny feeling possessing him increased. The thing was unnatural. He lurched on, however, looking for Li Chu. The Chinaman was not to be found in the kitchen, in the woodshed, in the cellar, in the loft, or in his own attic room, and the half-breed, Rada, declared she had not seen him. He could not be at the stables, for they were too far away to be reached in the time, and there were no signs of him between the house and the stables. When Mazarin returned to the front of the house, the two Chinamen also had vanished. There were no signs of them anywhere. Search did not discover them. Mingled anger and fear now possessed Mazarin. He would search no longer. No doubt the other two Chinamen had joined Li Chu in his hiding place, wherever it was. Why had the Chinamen come? What were they after? It did not matter for the moment. What he wanted was Louise, his bad child wife, who had broken from her cage and flown from him. Where would she go? Where, but to slow down ranch? Where, but to her lover, the circus rider, the boy with the head of brown curls, with the ring on his finger and the cupid mouth? Where would she go but to the man with whom she had spent the night on the prairie? Now he believed altogether that she was guilty, that everybody had conspired to deceive him, that he was in a net of dark deception. Even the two Chinamen, mysteriously coming and going, had laughed at him like two heathen gods, and had vanished suddenly like heathen gods. A weakness came over him, and the skin of his face became creased and clammy like that of a drowned man. His limbs trembled, so desperate was his passion. He stumbled into the house and into the dining room, where he kept a little black-bound Bible once belonging to his great-grandfather. He had thumbed it well in past years, searching it for passages of violence and denunciation. Now holy superstition seized him in the midst of the work of the devil, surrounding him with an almost medieval instinct. He seized the ancient book, as it were to deliver its incantations against everyone destroying his peace, stealing from him that which he prized beyond all earthly things. Take this woman away from him, this child wife from his sixty-five years, and what was left for him. She was the garden of spring in which his old age roamed at ease luxuriously. She was the fruit of the tree of pleasure. She was that which made him young again, 
renewed in him youth and the joys of youth. Take her away, the flower that smelled so sweet and luscious, the thing that he had held so often to his lips and to his breast. Take away what was his, by every holy right, because it was all according to the law of the land and of the holy gospel, and what was left. Only old age, the empty house bereft of a fair young mistress, something to smile at and to curse, if need be, since it was his own by the laws of God and man. Take her away, and the two wives that he had buried long years ago, with their gray heads and lank, sour faces, from which the light of youth had fled with the first child come to them, their ghosts would seek him out. They would sit at his table, and taunt him with his vanished Louise, asking him if he thought she was anything more than one of the trolls that tempted men aforetime, one of the devil's wenches that lured him into the secret garden, only at last to leave him scorned and alone. Where had she gone, his troll? with the face of an angel. Where had she gone? Where would she go, except to her devil's lover at Slowdown Ranch? He had just started for Slowdown Ranch armed with his greasy, well-thumbed Bible like a weapon in his pocket, when he heard a voice call him. It was full of the devil's laughter. It was the voice of Burlingame, the lawyer, on his horse. Burlingame had had a weary day and was refreshing himself by a canter on the prairie. Where are you going? asked Burlingame, as he cantered up to Mazarine's wagon. To slow down ranch? He saw the look of the drowned man in the face of Mazarine, over whom the flood of disaster had passed, and he guessed at once the cause of it, for Burlingame had the philosophy of a satanic mind, and he knew the things that happened to human nature. So, she's gone again, has she? He added deliberately, with intent to put a knife into the old man's feelings and to turn it in the thick of them. He wanted to hurt, because Mazarin had only a short time before dispensed with his services as a lawyer, and had blocked the way to that intimacy which he had hoped to establish with Tralee and its mistress. Besides, his pride as a professional man had been hurt, and he had been deprived of income which now went to his most hated professional rival. Mazarin's jealous soul had cut him off, on coming to know Berlingame's dark reputation. He had not liked the look Berlingame had given Louise when they met. Gone again, has she? Berlingame repeated sarcastically. Well, you needn't go to Slow Down Ranch to find her. She isn't there, and you won't find him there either, for I saw him come by the Lark River Trail into Askerton as I left, and a lady was with him. He booked this morning for the sleeper of the express going east tonight, so if I were you, I'd turn my horse's nose to Askerton, Mr. Mazarine. I don't know why I tell you this, as you're not my client now. But I go about the world doing good, Mr. Mazarine, only doing good. There was a look in Berlingame's face which heaven would not have accepted as goodness, and there was that in his voice which did not belong to the courts of the Lord. Malice, though veiled, showed in face and sounded in voice. Even as he spoke, Joel Mazarine turned his horse's head towards Askerton. You're sure a woman was with him? You're sure she was with him? He asked in chaos of passion. I couldn't see her face, it was too far away, answered Berlingame suggestively. But you can form your own conclusions, and the express is due in thirty minutes. He looked at his watch complacently. What's the good, Mazarine? Why don't you say, go and sin no more, or why don't you divorce her with the evidence about that night on the prairie? I could have got you a verdict and damages. Yes, I could have got you plenty of damages. He's rich. You took her back and condoned, you condoned, Mazarine, 
and now you'll neither have damages nor wife, and the express goes in thirty minutes. The express won't take Mrs. Mazarin away tonight, the old man said, a look of jungle fierceness filling his face. Berlingame laughed unpleasantly. Yes, you'll foul your own nest, Mazarin, and then bring her back to live in it. I know you. It isn't the love of God in your heart, because you'll never forgive her, but you'll bring her back to the nest you foul, just because you want her, you damned and luxurious mountain goat, as Shakespeare called your kind. With another laugh, which somewhat resembled that of the two strange vanished Chinamen, Berlingame flicked his horse and cantered away. A little time afterwards, however, he turned and looked toward Askerton, and he saw the old man whipping his horse into a gallop to reach Askerton Railway Station before the express went east. It's true, Mazarin, he said aloud. Orlando booked for the sleeper going east in thirty minutes, but the sleeper was for one only, and that one was his mother, you old hippopotamus. But I wonder where she is, where the divine Louise is. She hasn't levant with her Orlando. Now I wonder, he added. Then, with a sudden impulse, he dug heels into his horse's sides and galloped back towards Askerton. He wanted to see what would happen before the express went east. Chapter 13 Orlando Gives a Warning Askerton had never lost its interest for Mazarin and his wife since the day the mayor had welcomed them at the railway station. Askerton was not a petty town. Its career had been checkered and interesting and it had given haven to a large number of uncommon people. Unusual happenings had been its portion ever since it had been the railhead of the great transcontinental line, and many enterprising men, instead of moving on with the railway, when it ceased to be the railhead, settled there and gave the place its character. The town had never been lawless, although some lawless people had sojourned there. It was too busy a place to be fussing about little things, or tearing people's characters to pieces or gossiping even to the usual degree, yet in its history it had never gossiped so much as it had done since the Mazarines had come. From the first the vast majority of folk had sided with Louise and denounced Mazarin. They knew well she had married too young to be self-seeking or intriguing, and in any case, no woman in Askatun or yet in the West could have conceived of a girl marrying. The ancient one from the jungle, as Berlingame had called him. Berlingame could never have been on the side of the Ten Commandments himself, even with a sure and certain hope of happiness on earth, and in heaven also, guaranteed to him. Nothing could have condemned Mazarin so utterly as the coalition between the holy good people, as Berlingame called them, and himself, and between the holy good people and himself were many who in their secret hearts would never have shunned Louise if, after the night on the prairie with Orlando, release had been found for her in the divorce court. Jonas Billings had put the matter in a nutshell when he said, It ain't natural, them two, actually. For marrying her he ought to be tarred and feathered, and for the way he treats her he ought to be let loose in the hinties of the grizzlies. What he done to that girl is a crime agee in the law. If there was any real spunk in the Methodists, they'd spit him out like pus. That was exactly what the Methodist body had decided to do on the very day that Louise had fled from Tralee, and the old man pursued her in the wrong direction. The Methodist body had determined to discipline Mazarin, to eject him from their communion, because he had raised a whip against his wife, because he had maltreated Li Chu, and because he had used language unbecoming a Christian. 
They had decided that Mazarin had not shown the righteous anger of a Christian man, but of one who had backslided, and who, in the words of Rigby the chemist, must be spewed out of the mouth of the righteous into the dust of shame. That was the situation when Joel Mazarin drove furiously into the town and made for the railway station. Men like Jonas Billings, who saw him and had the scent for sensation, passed the word on downtown, as it is called, that something was up with Mazarin, and the railway station was the place where what was up could be seen. Therefore, a quarter of an hour before the arrival of the express which was to carry Orlando Guise's mother to her sick sister three hundred miles down the line, a goodly number of citizens had gathered at the station far more than usually watched the entrance or exit of the express. Mazarin's wagon and steaming horses were tied up outside the station, and inside on the platform Moses not much, as Mazarin had been called by Jonas Billings, marched up and down, his snaky little eyes blinking at the doorway of the station reception room. People came and some of them nodded to him derisively. Some, with more hardihood, asked him if he was going east, if he was expecting anyone, if he was seeing somebody off. A good many asked him the last question, because, as the minutes had passed, Berlingame had arrived. He had also disclosed his great joke to those who would carry it far and near, together with the news that Louise had taken flight. The last fact, however, was known to several people, because more than one had seen the young doctor and Patsy Kernaghan taking Louise to Nolan Doyle's ranch. It was dusk. The lamps of the station were being lighted five minutes before the express arrived, and as the lights flared up, Orlando entered the waiting room of the station, with a lady on his arm, and presently showed at the platform doorway, smiling and cheerful. He did not blench when Mazarin came towards him. Mazarin had seen the flutter of a blue skirt in the waiting room, and his wife had worn blue that day. Orlando saw the heavy, offensive figure of Mazarin making for him. He, however, appeared to take no notice, though he watched his outrageous pursuer out of the corner of his eye, as he quietly gave orders to a porter concerning a little heap of luggage. When he had finished this, he turned, as it were casually, to Mazarin. Then he giggled in the face of the master of Tralee. It was like the matador's waving of the scarlet cloth in the face of the enraged bull. Having thus relieved his feelings, Orlando turned and walked to the door of the reception room, but was stopped by the old man rushing at him. Swinging round, Orlando almost filled the doorway. You devil spawn! Mazarin almost shouted. Get out of that doorway. I want my wife. You needn't try to hide her. You thief! You lecherous circus rider! Stand aside, leper! Orlando coolly stretched out his elbows till they touched the sides of the door, and as the crowd pressed, he said to them mockingly, Get back, boys! Give him air! Can't you see he's gasping for breath? Then he giggled again. The old man looked round at the crowd, but he saw no sympathy, only aversion and ridicule. Suddenly he snatched his little black-bound Bible from his pocket and held it up. What does this book say? He thundered. It says that a wife shall cleave unto her husband until death. For the seducer and the betrayer death is the portion. The whistle of the incoming train was heard in the distance. The old man was desperate. It was clear he meant to assault Orlando. You will only take her away over my dead body. He ground out in his passion. The Lord gave, and only the Lord shall take away. 
he gathered himself together for the attack. Orlando waved a hand at him as one would at a troublesome child. At that instant, his mother stepped up behind him in the reception room. Orlando, she said in her mincing, piping little voice. Orlando, dear, the train is coming. Let me out. I'm not afraid of that bad man. I want to catch my train. Orlando stepped aside, and his mother passed through, to the consternation of Mazarin, who fell back. The old man now realized that Berlingame had tricked him. Laughter went up from the crowd. They had had a great show at no cost. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, Mr. Mazarin, called someone from the crowd. It's the next train she's going by, old Moses not much, shouted a friend of Jonas Billings. She's had enough of you, Joel, sneered another mocker. Wouldn't you like to know where she is, yellow lugs? queried a fat washerwoman. For an instant Mazarin stood demist, and then, thrusting the Bible into his pocket, he drew himself up in an effort of pride and defiance. Judas's! Jezebel's! He burst out at them all. Then he lunged through the doorway of the reception room, but at the door opening on the street his courage gave way, and hunched up like one in pain, he ran towards the hitching posts where he had left his horses and wagon. They were not there. With a groan which was also a malediction, he went up the street like a wounded elephant, and made his way to the police station through a town which had no pity for him. During the hour he remained in the town, Mazarin searched in vain for his horses and wagon. He looked everywhere except the shed behind the Methodist church. It was there the two wags who had played the trick on him had carefully hitched the horses, and presently they announced in town that they did it because they knew Mazarin would want to go to the prayer meeting to lay his crimes before the mercy seat. It was quite true that it was prayer meeting night, and as the merciless wags left the shed, the voice of Brother Rigby the chemist was narrating for the hundredth time the story of his conversion, when, as he said, the pains of hell got hold of him. Brother Rigby loved to relate the tortures of the day when he was convicted of sin, but on this night his ancient story seemed appropriate, as he had dealt with great severity on the doings of the backslider, Joel Mazarin. When the two wags returned to the front street of Askerton, they were just in time to see the second meeting of Orlando and Mazarin. Mazarin had not been able to find his horses at any hotel or livery stable, or in any street. It was at the moment, when, in his distraction, he had decided to walk back to Tralee, that Orlando, driving up the street, saw him. Orlando reined in his horses dropped from his buggy and approached him. There was a look in Orlando's eyes which was a reflection from a remote past, from ancestors who had settled their troubles with the first weapon and the best opportunity to their hands. The foreign element in him, as Jonas Billings called it, had been at full flood ever since he had bade his mother goodbye. A storm of anger had been raised in him. As he said to himself, he had had enough, he had been filled up to the chin by the Mazarin business, and his impulsive youth wanted to end it by some smashing act which would be sensational and decisive. So it was that fate offered the opportunity, as he came up the front street of Askerton, and found himself face to face with Mazarin, over against the offices of Berlingame. A word with you, Mr. Mazarin, he said with the air of a man who wants to ease his mind of its trouble by action. Back there at the station, I kept my tongue and let you down easy enough, because my mother was present. She is old and sensitive, and she doesn't like to see her son doing the dirty work every man must do some time or other, 
when there's street cleaning to be done. Now, let me tell you this. You've slandered as good a girl, you've libeled as straight a wife, as the best man in the world ever had. You've made a public scandal of your private home. You've treated the pure thing as if it were the foul thing, and yet you want to keep the pure thing that you treat like a foul thing, under your rawhide whip, because it's young and beautiful and good. You don't want to save her soul. He pointed to the Bible, which the old man had snatched from his pocket again. You don't want to save her soul. You don't care whether she's happy in this world or the next. What you want is what you can see of her, for your life in this world only. You want. The old man interrupted him with a savage emotion which Jonas Billings said made him look like. A satire. I want to save her from the wrath to come, he said. This here holy book gives me my rights. It says, Thou shalt not steal, and the trouble I have comes from you that stole my wife, that's put her soul in jeopardy, robbed my home. Robbed your home, interjected Orlando quietly, but with a voice of suppressed passion. Robbed your home. Why, the other day you tried to prevent her entering it. You wanted to shut her out. After she had lived with you all those years, you believed she lied to you when she told you the truth about that night on the prairie. But her innocence was proved by one who was there all the time, and for shame's sake you had to let her in. But she couldn't stand it. I don't wonder. A lark wouldn't be at home where a vulture roosts, And so the lark flies away to the cuckoo, snarled the old man, with flecks of froth gathering at the corners of his mouth, for the sight of this handsome, long-limbed youth enraged him. Give her back to me. You know where she is, he persisted. You've got her hid away. That's why you've sent your mother east, so she wouldn't know, though from what I see, I shouldn't think it'd have made much difference to her. Exclamations broke from the crowd. It was the Wild West. It was a country where, not twenty years before, men did justice upon men without the assistance of the law and the West understood that the dark insult just uttered would in days not far gone have meant death. The onlookers exclaimed, and then became silent, because a subtle sense of tragedy suddenly smothered their voices. Upon the silence there broke a little giggling laugh. It came from lips that were one in paleness with a face grown stony. I ought to kill you, Orlando said quietly after a moment, yet scarcely above a whisper. I ought to kill you, Mazarine but that would only be playing your game, for the law would get hold of me, and the girl that has left you would be sorrowful, for she knows I love her, though I never told her so. She'd be sorry to see the law get at me. She's going to be mine some day, in the right way. I'm not going behind your back to say it. I'm announcing it to all and sundry. I never did a thing to her that couldn't have been seen by all the world, and I never said a thing to her that couldn't be heard by all the world but I hope she'll never go back to you. You've made a sewer for her to live in, not a home. As I said, I ought to kill you, but that would play your game, so I won't, not now. But I tell you this, Mazarine, if I ever meet you again, and I'm sure to do so, and you don't get off the road I'm traveling on, or the sidewalk I'm walking on, when I meet you or when I pass you, I'll let you have what'll send you to hell, before you can wink twice. As for Louise, as for her, I don't know where she is, but I'll find her. One thing is sure, if I see her, I'll tell her never to go back to you, and she won't. You've drunk at the waters of Canaan for the last time. For a Christian you're pretty filthy. Go and wash in the pool of Salome and be clean, damn you, Mazarine. 
With that he turned, almost unheeding the hands thrust out to grip his, the voices murmuring approval. In a moment he had swung his horses round. He did not go beyond ten yards, however, before someone, running beside his wagon, whispered up to him. She's out at Nolan Doyle's ranch. She went with the young doctor and Patsy Kernaghan. Behind, in the street, a young boy came running through the crowd and shouting, I know where they are. I know where they are. He stopped before Mazarin. Give me half a dollar, and I'll tell you where your horses are. Give me half a dollar. Give me half a dollar, and I'll tell you. An instant later, with the half dollar in his hand, he said, They're up to the shed of the Meaton House. Yes, go along up to the Meaton House, Mr. Mazarin, said one of the miscreants who had driven the horses there. They're holding a post-mortem on you at the prayer meeting. They say you're dead in trespasses and sins. Get along, Joel. The crowd started to follow him to the shed where his horses were, but after a moment he turned on them and said, Ain't you heard and seen enough? Ain't there no law to protect a man? A hole was leaning against a fence. He saw it, and with sudden fury, seizing it, swung it round his head as if to throw it into the crowd. At that moment a stalwart constable ran forward, raised a hand towards Mazarin, and then addressed the crowd. We've had enough of this, he said. I'll lock up any man that goes a step further towards the meeting house. Where do you think you are? This is Askerton, the place of peace and happiness, and we're going to be happy if I have to lock up the whole lot of you. I guess you can go right on, Mr. Mazarin, he added. Go right on and get your wagon. A moment later Mazarin was walking alone towards the meeting house, but no, not alone, for a hundred devils were with him. Chapter 14 Fillion and Fiona, also Patsy Kernaghan Patsy Kernaghan was in his element in the garden with which Nora Doyle had decorated the brown bosom of the prairie. It had verdant shrubs, green turf, thick fringes of flowers, and one solitary elm tree in the center whose branches spread like a cedar of Lebanon. In the moonlight Patsy had the telling of a wonderful story to such an audience as he had never had before in his life, and he had had them from Bundaran to Limerick from Limerick to the foothills of the Rockies. The seance of love and legend had been Patsy's own idea. At the supper table spread by Nora Doyle, in spite of the protests of her visitors, the young doctor, Louise and Patsy, Nolan Doyle, who had a fine gift for playful talk, had tried to keep the situation free from melodrama. Yet Patsy had observed that, in spite of all efforts, Louise's eyes now and then filled with tears. Also, he saw that her senses seemed alert for something outside their little circle. It was as though she expected someone to arrive. She was in that state which is not normal and yet not abnormal, a kind of trance in which she did ordinary things in a natural way, yet mechanically, without full consciousness. There was no one at the table who did not realize what, and for whom, she was waiting. To her primitive spirit, now that she was in trouble because of him, it seemed inevitable that Orlando should come. One thing was fixed in her mind. She would never return to Tralee or to the man whose odious presence made her feel as though she was in a cage with an animal. Jonas Billings had called him. The Ancient One from the Jungle. And that was how at last he appeared to her. His arms and breasts were thick with hair. The hair on his face grew almost up to the eyes. The fingers of his splayed hands were blunt and broad and his hair was like a nest for things of the jungle undergrowth. 
since she had been awakened, the memory of his hot breath in her face, of his clumsy fevered embraces was a torment to her, for always in contrast there were the fresh clean-shaven cheeks and chin of a young berserker with honest, wondering blue eyes, the curly head of a child, and body and limbs like a young lean stag. Orlando's touch was never either clammy or fevered. She could recall every time that he had touched her, when her fingers and his met on the afternoon that Li Chu had thrown himself down the staircase with the priceless porcelain, also the evening of the night spent on the prairie when, after the accident, her hand had been linked into his arm, also when he had clasped her fingers at their meeting in the morning. On each occasion she had felt a thrill like that of music, persuasive, living vibrations passing to remote recesses of her being. No nearer had she ever come to the man she loved, no nearer had he sought to come. Once, the evening after the night spent on the prairie, when old Joel Mazarine had tried to make her pray and ask God's forgiveness, and he had kissed her with the lips of hungry old age, she had suddenly sat up in bed, her heart beating hard, every nerve palpitating, because in imagination she had seen herself in Orlando's arms, with his lips pressed to hers. Per neophyte in life's mysteries, having served as a slave at false altars of which she did not even know the ritual, it was no wonder that, after all she had suffered, she could not now bring herself into tune with the commonplace intercourse of life. Not that her friends utterly failed to lure her into it. She might well have been the victim of hysterics, but she was only distrait, pensive and gently smiling, with the smile of a good heart. Smiling with her had ever taken the place of conversation. It was an apology for not speaking when she could not speak what she felt. Once during the meal she seemed to start slightly, as though she heard a familiar sound, and for some minutes afterwards she seemed to be listening, as it were, for a knock at the door, which did not come. Immediately after that, Patsy, happy in sitting down to table with the quality, for such they were to him, because he saw that Louise must be distracted, and because he had seen storytelling, many a time, draw people away from their troubles even more than music, said, Did you remember the day it is, any of you? Sure, it's S.T. Droid's day. Ah, then, don't you know who he was? You don't. Well, well, there's no telling how ignorant the world can be. S.T. Droid, ah, he was a good man that brought the two children of Chief Diarmid and Queen Moira together. You didn't know about them, too? You neither H.R. to Chief Diarmid and Queen Moira and their two lovely children? Well, there it is. There's no saying how ignorant why are if why are not Irish. Ah, uh, no, they wasn't man and wife. Diarmid was a widower and Moira was a widow. Diarmid's boy was Filian and Moira's girl was Fiona, and the troubles of the two'd make a book for every day of the week, and two for Sunday. And the way that S.T. Droid brought them two together, ah, uh, come outside in the garden where the moon's to the full, and it's warm enough for any man or woman that's got a warm heart. And I'll tell you the story of Filian and Fiona. You'll not be forgetting the names of them now, will ye? And while I'm telling you, all the time you'll be thinking of S.T. Droid, for it's his day. It was nothing till him, S.T. Droid, that he lived in a cave, you understand? Wasn't his face like the sun coming up over the lake at Belinho in the month of June? Well, it doesn't matter if you've neither seen Belinho, you understand what I mean. Well, then come out until the garden, darlings. Sure, I'm matching to tell you this story, as fine a love story as Eva was told to man and woman. So it was that Louise with eyes alight for Patsy had a voice that could stir imagination in the dullest, 
So it was that Louise and the others went out into the moonlit garden, the prairie around them like an endless waste of sea. There they placed themselves in a half-circle around Patsy, who sat upon a little bench, with his back to the big spreading elm tree, which by some special gift had grown alone over the myriad years, defying storm and winter's frost, until it seemed to have an honored permanence, as stable as the prairie earth itself. As they seated themselves, there was renewed in Louise the feeling she had at supper time, when she had imagined, or had her senses accurately divined, that Orlando was near, so sure had been the sensation that she had expected Orlando to enter the room where they Saturday now it was on her again, and somehow she felt him there with her. He was Filian, and she was Fiona. Since the day she had first seen Orlando, she had awakened to life's realities. There had grown in her an alertness and a delicate sense of things, which, though natural to one born with a soul that cared little for sordid things, was not common, except in Celtic circles where the unseen thing is more real than the seen, where gold and precious stones are only valued in so far as they can purchase freedom, dreams and desire. Louise had not been thrilled without cause. Orlando, the real material Orlando, had driven out to Nolan Doyle's ranch, but having come, could not at first bring himself to enter. Something in him kept saying that it was not fair to her, kept admonishing him to let things take their course, that now was not the time to see her, that it might place her in a false position. Blameless though she was, she might be blamed by the world, if he and she, on the night that she fled from Joel Mazarin should meet, and above all, meet alone. And what was the good of meeting at all, if they did not meet alone? What could two voiceless people say to each other, people who only spoke with their hearts and souls, when others were staring at them, watching every act, listening for every word. His better sense kept telling him to go back to Slow Down Ranch. But there she was inside Nolan Doyle's house, and he had come deliberately to see her. He stood outside in the garden near the great spreading elm tree, torn by a sense of duty and a sense of desire. But the desire was to let her see by his presence that he would be a tower of strength to her, no matter what happened. It was not the desire which had possessed him whom Patsy Kernaghan had called the keeper of the zoological garden. He had just made up his mind that courage was the right thing, that he must see her in the presence of others for one minute, whatever the issue, when she came out with Patsy Kernaghan, the young doctor, and Nora and Nolan Doyle. None saw him, and as they seated themselves, he stepped noiselessly under the spreading branches of the elm tree. He would not speak to them yet he would wait. In the shade made by the drooping branches he could not be seen, yet he could hear and see all. There was silence for a moment, and then Patsy began the tale of St. Droid. Whoever he was, as Patsy said to himself, for he was going to make up out of his head the story of St. Droid and St. Droid's day, and Queen Mora, Filian and Fiona. It was a bold idea, but it gave Patsy the opportunity of his life. His description of Black Brian, the rich, ruthless king, to whom Queen Moira gave her daughter Fiona, despite the girl's bitter sorrow, was a masterpiece. It was modeled on Joel Mazarin. It was the behemoth transferred to Ireland, to the Cromlechs and castles, to the causeways, the caves, and the stony hillsides, to the bogs and the quicksands and the little men. But it could not be recognized as a portrait— though everyone felt how wonderful it was that a legend of a thousand years should be so close to the life of Askerton. Patsy had no knowledge of what the mother of Lees was like, but the likeness between her cruel, 
material, selfish spirit and Queen Moira, in the sacrifice of their offspring, provoked the admiration of the young doctor, whose philosophical mind had soon discovered that Patsy was making up the tale. That did not matter. Having got the thing started, Patsy gave reins to his imagination, and storm, terror, danger, and the capture of Fiona by Fillion, from Black Brian's castle in the hills, was told with primitive force and passion. But the most wonderful part of the story described how a strange dwarf little man came out of the hills in the east, across the land, to the western fastness of Black Brian, and there slew that evil man, because of an ancient feud, slew him in a situation of great indignity, and left him lying on the sands for the tide to wash him out to the deep and hungry sea. Even here Patsy had his inspiration from real life, and yet he disguised it all so well that no one except the young doctor even imagined what he meant. Under the tree Orlando listened with strained attention, absorbed and, at times, almost overcome. His long sigh of relief was joined to the sighs of the others when Patsy finished. The young doctor rose to go, and the others rose also. That's a wonderful story, Patsy, said the young doctor to him, and he added quizzically, You tell it so well because you've told it so often before, I suppose? Ah, well, that's it, I expect, answered the Irishman coolly. I thought so, responded the young doctor. Now, how many times do you think you've told that story before, Patsy? About a hundred, I should think, or no, I should think about two hundred times, answered Patsy shamelessly. I thought so, said the young doctor, but before turning to go into the house, he leaned and whispered in his ear, Patsy, you're the most beautiful liar that ever come out of Ireland. Ah, doctor dear, said Patsy softly. They all moved towards the house, save Louise. Please, I want to stay behind a minute or two, she said, as she held out a hand to the young doctor. Don't wait for me. I want to be alone a little while. Once more the young doctor felt the trembling appeal of her palm as on the first day they met, and he gripped her hand warmly. It will all come right. Good night, my dear, he said cheerfully. Have a good sleep on it. Louise remained in the garden alone, the moon shining on her face lifted to the sky. For a moment she stood so, wrapped in the peace of the night, but her body was almost panting from the thrill of the legend which Patsy Kernaghan had told. As he had meant it to do, it gave her hope, although before her eyes was the picture that Patsy had drawn of Black Brian with his great sword beside him lying on the sands, waiting for the hungry sea to claim him. Presently there stole through the warm air of the night the sound of her own name. She did not start. It seemed to her part of the dream in which she was. Her hand went to her heart, however. Again in Orlando's voice came the word, Louise, a little louder now. She turned towards the tree and there beside it stood Orlando. For an instant there was a sense of unreality, of ghostliness, and then she gave a little cry of pain and joy. As she ran towards him, with sudden impulse, his arms spread out and he caught her to his breast. His lips swept her hair. Louise! Louise! he whispered passionately. For an instant they stood so, and then he gently pressed her away from him. I had to come, he said. I want you to know that whatever happens you may depend on me. When you call I will come. I must go now. For your sake I must not stay. I had to see you. I had to tell you what I had never told you. You've always told me. She murmured. 
he stretched out his hand to clasp hers. He did not dare to open his arms again. The lips which he had never kissed were very near, and ah, so sweet. She must not come to him now. One swift clasp of the hand, and then he vaulted over the fence and was gone. A few moments afterwards she heard the rumble of his wagon on the prairie. He had tied up his horses some distance from the house. As the young doctor drove homeward with Patsy Kernaghan, he also heard the rumble of the wagon not far in front of him. Then he began to wonder why Louise had waited behind in the garden. He put the thought away from him, however. There was no deceit in Louise. He was sure of that. Chapter 15 Outward Bound Joel Mazarin did not take the trail to Tralee immediately after he found his wagon and horses in the shed of the Methodist meeting house. As he drove through the main street of Askatoon again, his lawyer, Berlingame's rival, waved a hand towards him in greeting. An idea suddenly possessed the old man, and he stopped the horses and beckoned. Get in and come to your office with me, he said to the lawyer. There's some business to do right off. The unpopularity of a client in no way affects a lawyer. Indeed, the most notorious criminal is the greatest legal advertisement, and the fortunate part of the business is that no lawyer is ever identified with the morals, crimes, or virtues of his client, yet has particular advantage from his crimes. So it was that Mazarin's lawyer enjoyed the public attention given to his drive through the town with Mazarin. He could hear this man say, Hello, what's up? Or another remark that the law and the gospel were out for war. Just as they were about to enter the office, however, Jonas Billings, who had a faculty for being everywhere at the interesting moment, said, so as to be heard by Mazarin and his lawyer, and all others standing near, going to leave his property away from his wife. Making a new will, eh? That's it, stamp on a girl when she's down. When you can't win the woman, keep the cash. Woe is me, Willie, but the wild one raggeth. Jonas' drawling, nasal, high-pitched sarcasm reached Mazarine's ears and stung him. He lurched round, and with beady eyes blinking with malice said roughly, The fool is known by his folly. You don't need to label yourself, Mr. Mazarine, retorted Jonas with a grin. The crowd laughed in approval. The loose lower lip of the master of Tralee quivered. The leviathan was being tortured by the little sharks. Presently the door of the lawyer's office slammed on the street, and Mazarin proceeded to make a new will, which should leave everything away from Lee's. After he had slowly dictated the terms of the will, with a glutinous solemnity he said, There, that's what comes of breaking the laws of God and man. That's what a woman loses who doesn't do her duty by the man that can give her everything, and that's give her everything, while she plays the Jezebel. I'll complete this for you, and you can sign it now, remarked the lawyer evasively, not without shrinking. But it won't stand as it is, or as you want it to stand, because Mrs. Mazarin has her legal claims in spite of it. She's got a wife's dower rights according to the law. That's one-third of your property. It's the law of the land and you can't sign it away from her, Mr. Mazarin. The old man's face darkened still more. His crooked fingers twisted in his beard. I see you forgot that, added the lawyer. There's only one way to dispossess her, and that's to put her through divorce, if you think you can. Of course this document will stand as far as it goes, and it's perfectly legal, but it isn't what you intend, and she'd get her one-third in spite of it. I'll come back tomorrow. 
said the old man, rising to his feet. You make it out, and I'll come back and sign it tomorrow. I'll make a sure thing of so much, anyway. The divorce'll settle the rest. You have it ready at noon tomorrow, and you can start divorce proceedings tomorrow, too. There's plenty of evidence. She run away from me to go to him. She stayed with him a whole night on the prairie. I want the divorce, and I can get the evidence. Everybody knows. This is the Lord's business, and I mean to see it through. Shame has come to the house of a servant of the Lord, and there must be purging. In the days of David she would have been stoned to death, and not so far back as that either. A moment afterwards he was gone, slamming the door behind him. His blood was up a turgid, angry flood almost bursting his veins. He now made his way to the house of the Methodist minister. There he announced that if he was disciplined at quarterly meeting, as was talked about in the streets, he would go to law against every class leader for defamation of character. By the time this was done the evening was well advanced. He did not leave Askerton until the moment which coincided with that in which Orlando left Nolan Doyle's garden and took the trail to Slowdown Ranch. Orlando would strike the trail from Askerton to Trilly at a point where another trail also joined. Mazarin drove fast through the town, as though eager to put it behind him, but when he reached the trail on the prairie he slackened his pace, and drove steadily homewards, lost in the darkest reflections he had ever known, and that was saying much. The reins lay loose in his fingers, and he became so absorbed that he was conscious of nothing save movement. The heart of Black Brian, the king, of whom Patsy Kernaghan told his mythical story in Nolan Doyle's garden, had never housed more repulsive thoughts than were in Mazarin's heart in this unfortunate hour of his own making. No single feeling of kindness was in his spirit. He heard nothing, was conscious of nothing, save his own grim, fantastic imaginings. A jealousy and hatred as terrible as ever possessed a man were on him. An egregious self-will, a dreadful spirit of unholy old age in him, was turned hatefully upon the youth long since gone from himself, the youth which, in its wild, innocent ardors, had brought two young people together, one of them his own captive for years. The peace of the prairie, the shining, infant moon, the kindly darkness, were all at variance with the soul of the man, whose only possession was what money could buy, and what money had bought in the way of human flesh and blood, beauty and sweet youth he had not been able to hold. To his mind, what was the good of having riches and power, if you could not also have love, license and the loot of the conqueror? He had wrestled with the Lord in prayer. He had been a class leader and a lay preacher. He had exhorted and denounced. He had pleaded and proscribed. Yet never in all his days of professed religion had a heart for others really moved Joel Mazarin. He had given now and then of gold and silver, because of the glow of mind which the upraised hands of admiration brought him, mistaking it for the real thing. But his life had been barren because it had not emptied itself for others, at any time, or anywhere. He had been a professed Christian, not because of Olivet, but because of Sinai. It was the stormy authority of the sword of the Lord of Gideon of the Old Testament which had drawn him into the fold of religion. It was some strain of heredity, his upbringing, the life into which he was born, pious, pedantic and preposterously prayerful, which had made him a professional Christian, as he was a professional farmer, rancher and money-maker. For such a man there never could be peace. In his own world of wanton inhumanity, oblivious of all except his torturing thoughts, 
He did not know that, as he neared the cross trails on his way homewards, something shadowy, stooping, sprang up from the roadside and slip-slopped after his wagon, slip-slopped, slip-slopped, catching the thud of the horse's hoofs and making its footsteps coincide. All at once the shadowy figure swung itself up softly and remained for an instant, half-kneeling, in the body of the wagon. Then suddenly, noiselessly, it rose up, leaned over the absorbed Joel Mazarine, and with long, hooked, steely fingers caught the throat of the master of Tralee under the grayish beard. They clenched there with a power like that of three men, for this was the kind of grip which, far away in the country of the Yang, Li Chu had learned in the days when he had made youth a thing to be remembered. No convulsive effort on the part of the victim could loosen that terrible grip, but the horses, responding to the first jerk of the reins following the attack, stood still, while a human soul was being wrenched out of the world behind them. No word was spoken. From the moment the fingers clutched his throat Joel Mazarine could not speak, and Li Chu did his swift work in grim and ghastly silence. It did not take long. When the vain struggles had ceased and the fingers were loosened, Li Chu's tongue clucked in his mouth once, twice, thrice, and that was all. It was a ghastly sort of mirth, and it had in it a multitude of things. Among them was vengeance and wild justice, and the thing that comes down through innumerable years in the Oriental mind, that the East is greater than the West, that now and then the East must prove itself against the West with all the cruelty of the world's prime. For a moment Li Chu stood and looked at the motionless figure, with the head fallen on the breast. Then he put the reins carefully in the hands of the dead man, placed the fallen hat on his head, climbed down from the wagon, patted a horse as he slip-slopped by, and disappeared towards Tralee into the night, leaving what was left of Joel Mazarine in his wagon at the crossing of the trails. As Li Chu stole swiftly away, he met two other figures, silent and shadowy, and somehow strangely unreal, like his own. After a moment's whisperings, they all three turned their faces again towards Tralee. Once they stopped and listened, there was the sound of wagons. One was coming from the north, that is, from the direction of Tralee. The other was coming from the southeast, that is, Nolan Doyle's ranch. Li Chu's tongue clucked in his mouth. Then he made an exclamation in Chinese, at which the others clucked also, and then they moved on again. Chapter 16 The Cross Trails Like Joel Mazarine on his journey from Askatun, Orlando, on his journey from Nolan Doyle's ranch, was absorbed, but his reflections were as different from those of the master of Tralia's sunrise as from midnight. Indeed, so bright was the light within Orlando's spirit that the very prairie around him seemed aflame. The moment with Louise in the garden lighted by the dim moon, the passing instant of perfect understanding, the touch of her hair upon his lips, her supple form yielding to his as he clasped her in his arms, had dropped like a curtain between him and the fateful episode in the main street of Askerton. That wonderful elation of youth on its first excursion into perfumed meads of love possessed him. He had never had flutterings of the heart for any woman until his eyes met the eyes of Louise at their first meeting, and a new world had been opened up to him. He had been as naive and native a human being with all his apparent foppishness, as had ever moved among men. What seemed his vanity had nothing to do with thoughts of womankind. It had been a decorative sense come honestly from picturesque forebears, and indeed from his own mother. In truth, until the day he had met Louise, or rather until the day of the bronco-busting, and the fateful night on the prairie, 
he had never grown up. He was wise with the wisdom of a child, sheer instinct, rightness of mind, real decision of character. His giggling laugh had been the undisciplined simplicity of the child, which, when he had reached manhood, had never been formalized by conventions. Something indefinite had marked him until Louise had come, and now he was definite, determined, alive with a new feeling which made his spirit sing, his spirit and his lips, for, as he came from Nolan Doyle's ranch to the cross trails, he kept humming to himself, between moments of silence in which he visualized Louise in a hundred attitudes, as he had seen her. There had come to him, without the asking even, that which Joel Mazarin, had he been as rich as any man alive or dead, could not have bought. That was why he hummed to himself in happiness. Youth answering to youth had claimed its own. Love springing from the dawn, brave and bright-eyed, had waved its wand towards that good country called home. Never from the first had any thought come into the minds of either of these two that was not linked with the idea of home. Nothing of the jungle had been in their thoughts, though they had been tempted, and love and the moment's despair had stung them to take revenge in each other's arms, yet they had kept the narrow path. There was in their love something primeval, that belonged to the beginning of the world. Orlando had almost reached the cross trails before he saw Mazarin's wagon standing in the way. At first he did not recognize the horses, and he called to the driver sitting motionless to move aside. He thought it to be some drunken ranchman. Presently, however, coming nearer, he recognized the horses and the man. Standing up, Orlando was about to call out again in peremptory tones, when, suddenly, the spirit of death touched his senses, and his heart stood still for an instant. As he looked at the motionless figure, he was only subconsciously aware of the thud of horses' hoofs coming down one of the side trails. Springing to the ground, he approached Mazarin's wagon. The horses neighed. It was a curious, lonely sound. For a moment he stood with his hand on the wheel looking at the still figure. Then he reached out and touched Mazarin's knee. Hi there, he said. There was no reply. He mounted the wagon, touched the dead man's shoulder, and then, with one hand, loosened the waistcoat and felt the heart. It was still. He examined the body. There was no wound. He peered into the face and saw the distortion there. Dead, dead, he said in an odd voice. The husband of Louise was dead. How he died, in one sense, did not matter. Louise's husband was dead. He would torture her no more. Louise was free. Slowly he got down from the wagon, vaguely wondering what to do, so had the tragedy confused his brain for the moment. As he did so, he was conscious of another wagon and horses a few yards away. Who goes there? called the voice of the newcomer. A friend, answered Orlando mechanically. Presently the newcomer sprang down from his wagon and came over to Orlando. What is it, Mr. Guise? he asked. What's the trouble? Who's that? he added, pointing to the dead body. It's Mazarin. He's dead, answered Orlando quietly. Oh, good God, said the other. He was an insurance agent of the town of Askerton, who that very evening had heard Orlando threaten the master of Tralee that if ever he passed him or met him, and Mazarin did not get out of the way, it would be the worse for him. Well, here in the trail were Orlando and Mazarin, and Mazarin was dead. Good God, the newcomer repeated. Scarsdale was his name. Then Orlando explained. It's not what you think, 
he said. Then he told the story, such as there was to tell, of what had happened during the last few moments. Scarsdale climbed up into the wagon, struck a light, looked at the body of Mazarine, at his face, and then lifted up the beard and examined the neck. There were finger marks in the flesh. So that's it, he said. Strangled. He seems to have took it easy, sitting there like that, he added as he climbed down. I don't understand it, remarked Orlando. As you say, it's weird, his sitting there like that with the reins in his hands. I don't understand it. I saw you getting down from the wagon, remarked Scarsdale meaningly. Say, do you really believe? Began Orlando without agitation, but with a sudden sense of his own false position. It ain't a matter of belief, the other declared. If there's an inquest, I've got to tell what I've seen. You know that, don't you? That's all right, replied Orlando. You've got to tell what you've seen, and so have I. I guess the truth will out. Come, let's move him on to Tralee. We'll lay him down in the bottom of the wagon, and I'll lead his horses with a halter. No, he added, changing his mind. You lead my horses, and I'll drive him home. A moment afterwards, as the procession made its way to Tralee, Scarsdale said to himself, He must have nerves like iron to drive Mazarine home, if he killed him. Well, he's got them, and still they call him Giggles as if he was a silly girl. Chapter 17 The Superior Man Students of life have noticed constantly that moral distinctions are not matters of principle but of certain peremptory rules found on nice calculations of the social mind. In the field of crime, responsibility is most often calculated, not upon the crime itself, but upon how the thing is done. In Askerton, no one would have been greatly shocked if, when Orlando Guise and Joel Mazarine met at the railway station or in the main street, Orlando had killed Mazarine. Mazarine would have been dead in either case, and he would have been killed by another hand in either case, but the attitude of the public would not have been the same in either case. The public would have considered the killing of Mazarine before the eyes of the world as justifiable homicide. Its dislike of the man would have induced it to add the word justifiable. But that Joel Mazarine should be killed by night without an audience, secretly, however righteously, shocked the people of Askerton. Had they seen the thing done, there would have been sensation, but no mystery. But night, secrecy, distance, mystery, all begot, not a reaction in Mazarine's favor, but a protest against the thing being done under cover, as it were, unhelped by popular observation. Also, to the Askerton mind, that one man should kill another in open quarrel was courageous, or might be courageous. But for one man to kill another, whoever that other was, in a hidden way, was a barbarian business. It seemed impossible to have any doubt as to who killed the man, though Orlando had not waited a moment after the body had been brought to Tralee, but had gone straight to the police, and told what had happened, so far as he knew it. He stated the exact facts. The insurance man, Scarsdale, would not open his mouth until the inquest, which took place on the afternoon after the crime had been committed. It was held at Tralee. Great crowds surrounded the house, but only a few found entrance to the inquest room. Immediately on opening the inquest, Orlando was called to tell his story. Every eye was fixed upon him intently. Every ear was strained as he described his coming upon the isolated wagon and the dead man with the reins in his hands. It is hard to say if all believed his story, but the coroner did, 
and Berlingame, his lawyer, also did. Berlingame was present, not to defend Orlando, because it was not a trial, but to watch his interests in the face of staggering circumstantial evidence. To Berlingame's mind Orlando was not the man to kill another by strangling him to death. It was not in keeping with his character. It was too aboriginal. The coroner believed the story solely because Orlando's frankness and straightforwardness filled him with confidence. Also men of rude sense, like Jonas Billings, were willing to take bets, five to one, that Orlando was innocent. The young doctor had not an instant's doubt, but he could not at first fix his suspicions in a likely quarter. He had examined the body, and there were no marks save bruises at the throat. In his evidence he said that enormous strength of hands had been necessary to kill so quickly, for it was clear the attack was so overpowering that there was little struggle. The coroner here interposed the question as to whether it would have been possible for anyone but a man to commit the crime. At his words everybody moved impatiently. It was certain he was referring to the absent wife. The idea of Louise committing such a crime, or being able to commit it, was ridiculous. The coroner presently stated that he had only asked the question so as to remove this possibility from consideration. The young doctor immediately said that probably no woman in the hemisphere could have committed the crime, which needed enormous strength of hands. The coroner looked round the room. The widow, Mrs. Mazarin, is not here? he said questioningly. Nolan Doyle interposed. Mrs. Mazarin is at my ranch. She came there yesterday evening at eight o'clock and remained with my wife and myself until twelve o'clock. The murder was committed before twelve o'clock. Mrs. Mazarin does not even know that her husband is dead. She is not well today, and we have kept the knowledge from her. Is she under medical care? asked the coroner. Nolan Doyle nodded towards the young doctor, who said, I saw Mrs. Mazarin at the house of Mr. Doyle last evening between the hours of eight and ten o'clock. Today at noon also I visited her. She has a slight illness and is not fit to take part in these proceedings. At this point, Scarsdale, who had come upon Orlando and the dead man at the cross trails the night before, told his story. He did it with evident reluctance. He spoke with hesitation, yet firmly and straightforwardly. He described how he saw Orlando climb down from the wagon where the dead man was. He added, however, that he had seen no struggle of any kind, though he had seen Orlando close to the corpse. Questioned by the coroner, he described the scenes between Orlando and Mazarin in the main street of Askatoon and at the railway station, both of which he had seen. He repeated Orlando's threat to Mazarin. He was pressed as to whether Orlando showed agitation at the cross trails he replied that Orlando seemed stunned but not agitated. He was asked whether Orlando had shown the greater agitation at the cross trails or in the town when he threatened Mazarin. The answer was that he showed agitation only in the town. He was asked to repeat what Orlando had said to him. This he did accurately. He was then asked by counsel whether he had arrived at any conclusion, when at the cross trails or afterwards, as to who committed the crime, but the coroner would not permit the question. The coroner added that it was only the duty of the witness to state what he had seen. Opinions were not permissible as evidence. The facts were in possession of the court, and the court could form its own judgment. It was clear to everyone that the jury must return a verdict of willful murder, and it was equally clear that the evidence was sufficient to fix suspicion upon Orlando, 
which must lead to his arrest. Two constables were in close attendance, and were ready to take charge of the man who, above all others, or so it was thought, had most reason to wish Mazarin out of the way. Indeed, Orlando had resigned himself to the situation, having realized how all the evidence was against him. Recalling Orlando, the coroner asked if it was the case that the death of Mazarin might be an advantage to him in any way. Orlando replied that it might be an advantage to him, but he was not sure. He added, however, that if, as the coroner seemed to suggest, he himself was under suspicion, it ought to appear to all that to have murdered Mazarin in the circumstances would have put in jeopardy any possible advantage. That seemed logical enough, but it was presently pointed out to the coroner that the same consideration had existed when Orlando had threatened Mazarin in the streets of Askerton. Presently the coroner said, There's a half-breed woman and a Chinaman, servants of the late Mr. Mazarin. Have the woman called. It was at this moment that the young doctor and Orlando also were suddenly seized with a suspicion of their own. Orlando remembered how Mazarin had horsewhipped and maltreated Li Chu. The young doctor fixed his eyes intently on the body, and presently went to it again, raised the beard and looked at the neck. Coming back to his place, he nodded to himself. He had a clue. Now he understood about the enormous strength which had killed Mazarin practically without a struggle. He had noticed more than once the sinewy fingers of the Chinaman. As the inquest went on, he had again and again looked at the hands and arms of Orlando, and it had seemed impossible that, strong as he was, his fingers had the particular strength which could have done this thing. The coroner stood waiting for Rada to come, when suddenly the door opened and a Chinaman entered, one of the two who had appeared so strangely on the scene the day before. He advanced to the coroner with both hands loosely hanging in the great sleeves of his blue padded coat, his eyes blinking slowly underneath the brown forehead and the little black skullcap, and after making salutation with his arms, in curious, monotonous English with a quaint accent he said, Li Chu, Li Chu, he speak. He have to say. He send. Holding up a piece of paper, he handed it to the coroner, and then stood blinking and immobile. A few moments afterwards, the coroner said, I have received this note from Li Chu the Chinaman, sometime employed by the deceased Joel Mazarin. I will read it to you. Slowly he read, I say Glaudam. That Orlando he not kill Mazelin. I say Glaudam Mazelin. That Mazelin he Christian. He says Clist his brother. Clist not save him when Li Chu's fingers had Mazelin's throat. That Glaudam Mazelin I kill. That Mazelin kick me, hit me with whip, where he kick, I sick all time. I not sleep no more since then. That Louise in no good she stay with Mazelin. Confucius speak like this, young woman go to young man, young bird is for green leaves, not dry branch. That Louise good woman, that Orlando hell fellow good. I kill Mazelin, Glaudam, with my hands I kill. You want know all why Li Chu kill? You want kill Li Chu? You come. As the coroner stopped reading, amid gasps of excitement, the Chinaman who had brought the note with brown skin polished like a kettle, expressionless, save for the twinkling mystery of the brown eyes made three motions of obeisance up and down with his hands clasped in the great sleeves, and then said, He not come you, you come him. He gleat man. He speak all, come. I show where. Where is he? asked the coroner. The Chinaman did not reply for a moment. Then he said, 
He sacrificed before you take him. He gleat man, come. He slip-slopped towards the door as though confident he would be followed. Two minutes afterwards the coroner, Orlando, the young doctor, Nolan Doyle and the rest stood at the low doorway of what looked like a great grave. It was, however, a big root house used for storing vegetables in the winter time. It had not been used since Mazarin arrived at Trilly. Into this place, nor far from the house, Li Chu and his two fellow countrymen had gone the day before, when Mazarin, in his rage, had come forth with the horsewhip to punish the chinky, as Li Chu was familiarly known on the ranch. As they arrived at the vault-like place in the ground, which would hold many tons of roots, another Chinaman came to the doorway. He was one of the two who, in their sudden coming and going, had seemed like magic people to Mazarin the day before. He made upward and downward motions of respect with clasped hands in the blue sleeves, and presently, in perfect English, he said, In one minute Li Chu will receive you. It is the moment of sacrifice. You wish him to die for the death of Mazarin. So be it. It is right for him to die. You will hang him. That is your law. He will not prevent you. He has told the truth, but he is making the sacrifice. When that is done you will enter and take him to prison. The two constables standing beside the coroner made a move forward, as though to show they meant to enforce the law without any palaver. The Chinaman raised the palms of both hands at them. Not yet, he said. Then he looked at the coroner. You are master. Will you not prevent them? The coroner motioned the constables back. All right, he said. You seem to speak good English. I come from England from Oxford University, answered the Chinaman with dignity. I have learned English for many years. I am the son of Duke Key. I came to see my uncle, the brother of Duke Key. He is making sacrifice before you take him. Well, I'm blasted, said Jonas Billings from the crowd. Chinese dukes, eh? What's it all about? Reglar Hocus Pocus, remarked the vagabond brother of Rigby the chemist. At that moment little colored lights suddenly showed in the darkness of the root house, and there was the tinkling of a bell. Then a voice seemed calling, but softly, with a long, monotonous, thrilling note. Many may not come, said the Chinaman at the door to the coroner, as he turned and entered the low doorway. A minute afterwards the two constables held back the crowd from the doorway of the root house, from the threshold of which a few wooden steps descended to the ground inside. A strange sight greeted the eyes of those permitted to enter. The root house had been transformed. What had been a semi-underground place composed of scantlings, branches of trees and mother earth, with a kind of vaulted roof, had been made into a sort of Chinese temple. All round the walls were hung curtains of black and yellow, decorated with dragons and gold, and above, suspended by cords at the four corners, was a rug or banner of white ornamented with a great tortoise, the sacred animal of Chinese religion, with gold eyes and claws. All round the side of the room were set colored lights, shaded and dim. Coming from the bright outer sunlight, the place in its shadowed state seemed half-sepulchral. When the coroner, Orlando, the young doctor and the others had accustomed themselves to the dimness, they saw at the end of the chamber, for such, in effect, it had been made with its trappings and decorations, a figure seated upon the ground. Nearby the figure, on either hand, there were standards bearing banners, and the staffs holding the banners were, bound in white silk, with long streamers hanging down. 
half enclosing the banners were fan-like screens. Along the walls also were flags with toothed edges. The figure was seated on a mat of fine bamboo in the midst of this strange scheme of decoration. Behind him, and drawn straight across the chamber, was a sheet of fine white cloth embroidered with strange designs. He was clothed in a rich jacket of blue, and a pair of sandal-like shoes was placed neatly in front of the bamboo mat. On either side and in front of all, raised a little from the ground, were bowls or calabashes containing fruit, grain and dried and pickled meats. It was all orderly, circumspect, weird, and even stately though the place was small. Finally, in front of the motionless figure was a tiny brazier in which was a small fire. Before the spectators had taken in the whole picture, the Chinaman who had entered with them came and stood on the right of the space occupied by the mat, near to the banners and the screens, and under a yellow light which hung from the vaulted roof. The figure on the fine bamboo mat was Li Chu, but not the Li Chu which Trilly and Askatun had known. He was seated with legs crossed in oriental fashion and with head slightly bowed. His face was calm and dignified. It had an impassiveness which made an interminable distance between him and those who had till now looked upon him as a poor chinky, doing a roustabout's work on a ranch, the handyman, the jack-of-all-trades. Yet, in spite of the menial work which he had done, it was now to be seen that the despised Li Chu had still lived his own life, removed by centuries and innumerable leagues from his daily slavery. As they looked at him, brooding, immobile, strange, he lifted his head, and the excessive brightness of his black eyes struck with a sense of all all who saw. It was absurd that Li Chu, the hireling, Yellowfizz, as he had also been called, should here command a situation with the authority of one who ruled. Presently he spoke, not in broken English, but in Chinese. It was interpreted by the Chinaman standing on the right by the screens, in well-cadenced, cultured English. I have to tell you, said Li Chu, the other's voice repeated the words after him, that I am the son of greatness, of a ruler in my own land. It was by the Yang Zikyang, and there were riches and pleasant things in the days of my youth. In the hunt, at the tavern, I was first amongst them all. I had great strength. I once killed a bear with my bare hands. My hands had fame. I had office in the city where my cousin ruled. He was a bad man, and was soon forgotten, though his children mourned for him as is the custom. I killed him. He gave counsel concerning the city when there was war, but his counsel was that of a traitor, and the city was lost. Now behold, it is written that he who has given counsel about the country or its capital should perish with it when it comes into peril. He would not die, so I killed him, but not before he had heaped upon me baseness and shame. So I killed him. Yet it is written that when a minister kills his ruler, all who are in office with him shall without mercy kill him who did the deed. That is the law. It was the word of the Son of Heaven that this should be. But those who were in office with me would not kill me, because they approved of what I did. Yet they must kill me, since it was the law. What was there to do but in the night to flee, so that they who should kill me might not obey the law? Had I remained, and they had not obeyed the law, they also would have been slain. He paused for a moment, and then went on. So I fled, and it is many years since by the Yang Zikyang I killed my ruler and saved my friends. Yet I had not been faithful to the ancient law, and so through the long years I have done low work among a low people. 
This was for atonement, for long ago by the Yantzi Kiang I should have died, and behold, I have lived until now. To save my friends from the pain of killing me I fled and lived, but at last here at this place I said to myself that I must die. So, secretly, I made this cellar into a temple. That was a year ago, and I sent to my brother the Duke Key to speak to him what was in my mind, so that he might send my kinsmen to me, that when I came to die, it should be after the manner ordained by the Son of Heaven, that my body should be clothed according to the ancient rites by my own people, my mouth filled with rice, and the meats, and grains and fruits of sacrifice be placed on a mat at the east of my body when I died that the curtain should be hung before my corpse, that I should be laid upon a mat of fine bamboo, and dressed, and prepared for my grave, and put into a noble coffin as becomes a superior man. Did not the Son of Heaven say that we speak of the end of a superior man, but we speak of the death of a small man? I was a superior man, but I have lived as a small man these many days, and now, behold, I am drawing near to my end as a superior man. I wish that nothing should be forgotten, that all should be done when I, of the house of the Duke Key, came to my superior end. So, these my kinsmen came, these of my family, to be with me at my going, to call my spirit back from the rooftop with face turned to the north, to leap before my death mat, to wail and bear the shoulders and bind the sackcloth about the head. I have served among the low people doing low things, and now I would die, but in the correct way. Once to the listeners Confucius said, The great mountain must crumble, the strong beam must break, the wise man must wither away like a plant. So it is. It is my duty to go to my end, for the time is far spent, and I should do what my friends must have done had I stayed in my ancestral city. Again he paused, and now he rocked his body backwards and forwards for a moment. Then presently he continued, Yet I would not go without doing good there should be some act among the low people by which I should be remembered. So, once again, I killed a man. He could not withstand the strength of my fingers. They were like steel upon his throat. As a young man my fingers were like those of three men. Shall a man treat his wife as she, Louise, was treated? Shall a man raise his hand against his wife, and live? Also, was he to live, the low man, that struck a high man like me with his hands, with the whip? with his feet, stamping upon me on the ground? Was that to be, and he live? Were the young that should have but one nest to be parted, to have only sorrow if Joel lived? So I killed him with my hands. He slightly raised his clasped hands, as though to emphasize what he said, but the gesture was grave and quiet. So I killed him, and so I must die. It was the duty of my friends to kill me by the young Zikyang. It is your duty, you of the low people, to kill me who has killed a low man. But my friends by the Yang Tzukyang were glad that the ruler died, and you of the low people are glad that Joel is dead. Yet it is your duty to kill me. But it shall not be. He quickly reached out his hands and drew the burning brazier close to his feet. Then, suddenly, from a sleeve of his robe he took a little box of the sacred tortoise shell, pressed his lips to it, opened it, poured its contents upon the flame leaned over with his face close to the brazier and inhaled the little puff of smoke that came from it. So for a few seconds, and then he raised himself and sat still with eyes closed and hands clasped in his long sleeves. Presently his head fell forward on his breast. A pungent smell passed through the chamber. It produced for the moment dizziness in all present. Then the sensation cleared away. 
The Chinaman at the right of Li Chu looked steadfastly at him. Then, all at once, he bared his shoulders and quickly bound a piece of sackcloth round his head. This done, he raised his voice and cried out with a monotonous ululation, and at once a second voice cried out in a long wailing call. Outside Li Chu's kinsman, with his face turned to the north, was calling his spirit back, though he knew it would not come. At the first sound of the voice crying outside, the Chinaman beside Li Chu leaped thrice in front of the brazier, the mat, and the moveless body. At that moment the young doctor came forward. He who had leaped stood between him and the body of Li Chu. You must not come. Li Chu, the superior man, is dead. He protested. I am a doctor, was the reply. If he is dead, the law will not touch him, and you shall be alone with him, but the law must know that he is dead. That is the way that prevails among the low people, he added ironically. The Chinaman stood aside, and the young doctor stooped, felt the pulse, touched the heart and lifted up the head and looked into Li Chu's sightless eyes. He is dead, he said, and he came back again to the coroner and the others. Let's get out of this, he added. He is beyond our reach now. No need for an inquest here. He has killed himself. Then he caught Orlando's hand in a warm grip. As they left the chamber, the kinsman of Lichu was gently laying the body down upon the bamboo mat. At the doorway the other son of the duke, he was still monotonously calling back the departed spirit. The inquest on Joel Mazarin was ended presently, and Nolan Doyle and the young doctor set out to tell Louise that a low man, once her husband, had paid a high price for all that he had bought of the fruits of life out of due season. Chapter 18 Youth Has Its Way Ah, uh, Dr. Dear, there's many that's less use in the world than Chinamen, and I'd like to see more o' them here away, remarked Patsy Kernaghan to the young doctor in the springtime of another year. Stringth of mind is all right, but stringth of fingers is better still. You're a bloodthirsty pagan, Patsy, returned the young doctor. Hell to me, Sal, then, didn't let you pull things straight? I'm not much of a murdering man myself. I haven't the strength with me fingers, but there's many a time I'd like to do what Lee Chu done. Sure, I don't want to be as piakinil of the dead, but look at it now. There was old Mazarin, breaking the poor child's heart, as fine a fella as Ever trod the world action for her, and his life being spoilt by the goings on at Tralee. Then in steps the chinky and with strength of mind and strength of fingers puts things right. No, no, Patsy, you've got bad logic and worse morals in your head. As you say, things were put right, but trouble enough came of it. Divils me, darlin', doctor, it was bound to come all right some time. Sure, wasn't it natural the child should be all crumpled up like and lose her head for a while? Wasn't it natural she should fight out Agin talking the property the Leviathan left her, when she knew there was another will he'd spoke on a paper to the lawyer the night he died, though he hadn't signed it? And isn't it so that yourself it was talked her round? The young doctor waved a hand reprovingly, but Patsy continued. Now, looking back on it, don't ye think it was clever enough what you said till her? Do justice to yourself and to others, little lady, says you. Be just, divide the place up, give two-thirds of it away to the children of Joel's first two wives and keep one-third, which is yours by law in any case. For why should it be that you should give ivory thin and get nothing? He had the best of you of your girlhood and your youth, says you. Sure why are entitled to bread and meat, and a roof over you, as a wife, 
and as one that got nothing from your married life of what ought to be got by honest girls like you, or by any woman, if it comes to that, says you. Ah, sure then, I know you said it, because didn't she tell it all to Nora Doyle, and didn't Nora tell Nolan, and me sitting by and glad enough that the cleverest man between here and the other side of the world talked her round. Ah, how you talk, why are Anner? Sure, isn't it the wonder that you don't talk the dead back to the world out of which you help them? I might have been a great man, myself. He grinned. If I'd had your education, but here I am, a lone man as Li Chu said, talking me place simple as a babe. Patsy, you saved my life, remarked the young doctor. You saved my life daily. That's why I'm glad you're getting a good home at last. At Slow Down Ranch, with her that's to be its queen. Well, isn't that like her to be thinking of others? As a rule the rich is so busy looking after what they've got that they're not worrying about the poor. But she thought of me, didn't she? The young doctor nodded, and Patsy pursued his tale. Haven't I see her day in, day out, at Nolan Doyle's ranch, and don't I understand why it is she's not set foot in Trilly since the old one left it feet foremost, for his new seven-foot home, housed in a bit of wood him that had had the run of the world? She'll set no foot in Trilly at all any time. If she can help it, that's the breed of her. Well, it is as it is, and what's going to be what plays every mother's son in Askerton? Giggles they called him. A bit of a girl they thought him. What's he turned out to be, though he's giggling still? Why, a man that's got the double cinch on Askerton. Even that fella Berlingame had nothing to say agey in him. And when Berlingame hasn't any mud to throw, then you must stop and look hard. Sure, the blessed virgin or the Almighty himself, couldn't escape the tongue of Augustus Berlingame, not even you. The young doctor burst out laughing. The blessed Mary, or the Almighty himself, not even you, well, Patsy, you're a wonder. He said. Ah, you're not going to get off by scoffing at me, remarked Patsy. Sure, what did Augustus Berlingame say of you? Well now, what did he say? Yes, Patsy, what was it? Urged the other. Sure, he criticized you. He called you squills, and said you'd help more people until the world than out of it. You call that criticism. Patsy? Whichever way you look at it, hasn't it an ugly face? Is it a kindness to man to bring him into the world? That's one way of looking at it. But suppose he meant the other thing, that not being married you. Patsy Kernaghan, interjected the young doctor sternly. You're not fit company. Take care, or there'll be no slow-down ranch for you. An evil mind. Now it was Patsy's turn to interrupt. Watch me now. I think that one of the most beautiful things I ever saw was them two young people coming together. Five long months it was, after Mazarine was put away before she spoke with him. It was in the garden at Nolan's ranch, and even then it wasn't AC till her. Not that she didn't want to see him all the time. Not, I'll be bound, that she didn't say. When you and Nolan first told her the Mastodon was dead, thank God, I'm free. But there he was, flung out of the world without a minute's notice, and with the black thing in his heart. Sure you'll be understanding it a thousand times better than myself, why are Anner? He took a pinch of snuff from a little box, offered it to the young doctor, and continued his story. Well, as I said, when five months had gone by they met. By chanked I saw the meeting. Watch me now. I'll tell you how it was. She was sitting on a bench in the garden, 
looking in front of her and seeing nothing but what was in her mind's eye, and who can tell what she would be seeing? There she sat sweet as a saint, very straight up, the palms of her hands laid on the bench on either side, as though they was supporting her, like a statue she looked. I watched her many a minute, but she neither moved. Well, there she was, looking, looking in front o' her, when round the big tree in the middle of the garden he come and stood forninst her. They just looked and looked at each other without a word. Like months it seemed. They looked, and looked, as though they was trying to read some story in each other's eyes, and then she gave a kind of joyful moan, and until his arms she went like a nestling bird. He raised up her head, and well, now, wire Anner, I neither saw anything I liked better. There neither had been a girl in his life, and there neither was a man in hers, not one that mattered, till they two took up with each other, and it's a thing. Well, wire Anner, I'd be a proud man if I could write it down. It's a story that'd take its place beside the ancient ones. The young doctor looked at Patsy meditatively. Patsy, said he, the difference between the north and the south of Ireland is that in the south they are all poets. He paused. Well, you haven't finished, why are Anner? said Kernaghan. And in the north they think they are, continued the young doctor. I'd like to see those two as your eyes in front of your mind saw them, Patsy. Ah, uh, well then, you couldn't do it, Dr. Dear, for you've neither been in love. Sure, there's no heart till ye, answered the Irishman, and took another pinch of snuff with a flourish. Flamingo-like in her bright-colored, figured gown, with a wild flower in her hair and her gray curls dancing gently at her temples, a little old lady trotted up and down the big sitting-room of Slow Down Ranch, talking volubly and insistently. One ironically-minded would have said she chirped, for her words came out in not unmusical, staccato notes, and she shook her shriveled, ringed fingers reprovingly at a stalwart young man. Once or twice, as she seemed to threaten him with what the poet called the slow, unmoving finger of scorn, he giggled. It was evident that he was at once amused and troubled. This voice had cherished and chided him all his life, and he could measure accurately what was behind it. It was a willful voice. It had the insistence which power gives, and to a woman, or to most women, power is either money or beauty, since, in the world as it is, office and authority are denied them. Beauty was gone from the face of the ancient dame, but she still had much money, and on rare occasions, it gave her a little arrogance. It did so now as she admonished her beloved son, who at any time would have renounced fortune, or hope of fortune, for some willful idea of his own. A less sordid modern did not exist. He was not very effective in the contest of tongue between his mother and himself. As the talk went on he foresaw that he was to be beaten, yet he persisted, for he loved a joy wrangle, as he called it, with his mother. He had argued with her many a time, just to see her in a harmless passion, and note how the youth of her came back, giving high color to the wrinkled face, and how the eyes shone with a brightness which had been constant in them long ago. They were now quarreling over that ever-fruitful cause of antagonism, the second woman in the life of a man. Yet, strange to say, the flamingo-like Eugenie Guise was fighting for the second woman, not against her. I'll say it all again and again and again till you have sense, Orlando, she declared. Your old mother hasn't lived all these years for nothing. I'm not thinking of you, I'm thinking of her. She pointed towards the door of another room, from which came sounds of laughter 
happy laughter, in which a man's and a woman's voices sounded. On the day she comes into this house, and that's the day after tomorrow, I shall go. I'll stand at the door and welcome you, and see you have a good wedding breakfast and that it all goes off grand then I shall vanish. Orlando made a helpless gesture of the hand. Well, mother, as I said, it will make us both unhappy, Louise as much as me. You and I have never been parted except for a few weeks at a time, and I'm sure I don't know how I could stand it. Rather late to think about it, the other returned. You can't have two women spoiling you in one house and being jealous of each other. Oh, you needn't toss your fingers. Even two women that love each other can't bear the competition. Just because I love her and want her to be happy, off I go to your Aunt Amelia to live with her. She's poor, and I'll still have someone to boss as I bossed you. I never knew how much I loved Amelia till she got sick last year when everything terrible was happening here. I'm going, Orlando. There, I made that up on the moment. It's true, even if it is poetry. It isn't poetry, mother, was the reply, and there was an ironical look in Orlando's eyes. Poetry is the truth of life. He hastened to add carefully. And it's not poetry to say that you could be a killjoy. The little lady tossed her head. Well, you'll never have a chance to prove it, for I'm taking the express east on the night of your wedding. That's settled. Amelia needs me, and I'm going to her. Your wedding present will be the ranch and a hundred thousand dollars. She added, You're the sun-dried fruit of paradise, mother. Orlando said, taking her by the arms. I heard the young doctor call me a bird of paradise once. She returned. People don't know how sharp my ears are. But I never stored it up against him. Taste is born in you, and if people haven't got it in the cradle, they never have it. I suppose his mother went around in a black alpaca and wore her hair like a wardress in a jail. I'm sorry for him, that's all. Suppose I should get homesick for you and run away from her, remarked Orlando slyly. Run away with her to me, chirped Eugenie, with a vain little laugh. Suddenly her manner changed, and she looked at her son with dreamy intensity. You are so wonderfully young, my dear, she said, and I am very old. I had much happiness with your father while he lived. He was such a wise man. Always he gave in to me in the little things, and I gave in to him in all the big things. He almost made me a sensible woman. There was a strange wistfulness in her face. Through all the years, down beneath everything, there had been the helpless knowledge in her own small, garish mind that she had little sense. Now she realized that she was given a chance to atone for all her pettiness by doing one great sensible thing. Orlando was about to embrace her, but she briskly turned away. She could not endure that. If he did it, the pent-up motherhood would break forth, and her courage would take flight. She was something more than the parakeet of Pernambucoco, as Patsy Kernaghan had called her. She went to the door of the other room. I want to talk to the young doctor about Amelia, she said. He's clever, and perhaps he could give her a good prescription. I'll send Louise to you. It's nicer courting in this room where you can see the garden and the grand hills. You're going to give Louise the little gray mare you listed last year, aren't you? I always think of Louise when I look at that gray mare. You had to break the pony's heart before she could be what she is, the nicest little thing that ever was broken by a man's hand. And Louise, she had to have her heart broken too. 
Your father and I were almost of an age. He was two years older, and we had our youth together. And you and Louise are so wonderfully young, too. Be good to her, son. She's never been married. She was only in prison with that old lizard. What a horrible mouth he had. It's shut now, she added remorselessly. Opening the door of the other room, she disappeared. A moment later, Louise entered upon Orlando. The vanished months had worked wonders in her. She was like the young summer beyond the open windows, alive to her fingertips, shyly radiant, with shining eyes, yet in their depths an alluring pensiveness never to leave them altogether. Knowledge had come to her, an apprehending soul was speaking in her face. The sweetness of her smile, as she looked at the man before her, was such as could only be distilled from the bitter herbs of the desert. Oh, Orlando, she said joyously, as she came forward. 